Based on our audience reaction to our last podcast, they would say that you're one of their favorite guests too. So thank you very much, Donnie Vincent, for being on the show again. Holy shit. Again, this time I'm leaving the maker's mark off the table. So, <laughs> Well, thank you. I, uh, I can't believe I'm your favorite uh, guest. I appreciate that or even the people's, but it's, it's uh, like we were just talking about, it's remarkable to talk about the things that we do in life and the philosophies that we have and the places we like to go and things that we like to do. And, and, uh, yeah. And, and I think this last one was maybe so popular because we talked about some suffering. We talked to, we talked a lot about life I yeah. think in general, I'm, which is my first question. Mm -hmm. So what the hell has been going on in Donnie Vincent's life since the last time we were on a podcast, which was, Six months ago, roughly, I think. Yeah, yeah, this summer. Yep. Um, I have been, we have been at Sick Manta just working on our latest film piece, right. which I hope to never, ever be building a film again in the fall. It was taxing to be filming in the wilderness and being in the wilderness and coming home hungry and dehydrated and beat up and then walking into the office into you know, what we call real life and, and having, you know, Kyle Nicolet, my producer saying, Hey, um, I need some writing from you and, and it has to be awesome and inspired and, and not suck. So, you know, and it's my, it's my own damn fault because <laughs> it's funny. I did podcast in January and people have been kind of asking for this newest piece to come out, this newest right. film. And I, it, it's not that I was lying to them, but I thought, I was going to be more efficient than I was. And so I tell people, oh, it's going to be done by March. Oh, it's going to be out by March, you know? Right. And and then January, February, and March would come and go in a flash. And then I'd say, oh, it, for sure, it's going to be out in June. It's going to be out in June, you know? Right. And, and then June became August. And then the reality of it was I was struggling with the piece. We We kind of all were, but I was struggling with the piece because it's such a complex story and... I don't know. The writing is just, it's tough for me. It's tough to embody everything that I want to cover and, and, um, and convey the ideas and the notions and, and, uh, yeah. So I, that's what I've been doing, working on that and then filming, um, in the woods. And so that's, that's basically took me through summer and into fall. Well, what were the, uh, first and foremost, what, what was the name of the film? Uh, and then what, what were the ideas and the concepts that you wanted to, to bring out? So the name of the film is The Other Side. Right. And um, we chose that for a couple of reasons. One, whenever I'm doing these wilderness pieces, um, there's always immense travel involved, right? And always starting out on a big airplane, you know, getting to Alaska or the Northwest Territories and hopping on like a twin, twin prop plane and then hopping into a single prop plane like a Cessna right. and then into, you know, a Super Cub, something like that. So there's right. always this idea of travel. So that's why we picked the literal, the other side. Mm -hmm. But um, this was an entangled web that we kind of, um, you know, wove together ourselves. And it was this idea of... we. 
we had filmed a number of bear hunts and every time I went on a bear hunt, you know, I'd kind of sit there and say to myself, like, what the hell am I doing? Like, I love being here. I love the beauty of the places that these bear hunts were taking me. But every time I saw a bear, I wanted to kill one less and less and less and less. And it even started out on my first bear hunt. The very first bear I saw, I've talked about this a few times and I believe even with you, but I had my 7mm and I was sitting there on the beach and that bear came out and I just thought, oh, I don't, I don't have this. I don't, whatever this is, right? I don't have it. And so I did end up killing a bear on that trip. Um, and I've killed a number of bears since on different hunts, but you know, I really started to, um, I really started to question myself when I was doing grizzly bear hunts and brown bear hunts because we generally don't eat those animals. Mm -hmm. They are generally thought to be unedible, that, which is not true. You can eat them and, and given an somewhat intense preparation, they can be very, very good. It is right. intense though, like you soaking it in milk. And so I just started to sit there on the side of the hill and when you hunt these species, unless you're an Alaska resident or a Canadian resident, you have to be guided. So I live in Wisconsin, so I'm always guided when I'm doing these things. So I'd sit on the hill with my guide and they had no idea I was thinking this, but I'd sit there and wonder what the hell I was doing because am I, so am I sitting here to kill this giant bear just for a stupid photograph that I'm going to love, but really that's all that's represented by the loss of life here and the small contribution that I'm making to conservation, which we can talk about in a moment, but then I'm going to skin him out. I'm going to leave his carcass right here on the, on the side of the river because I'm probably the only one that actually wants to carry it out right. and actually put it in a backpack and carry it out because it's not because I'm in love with brown bear meat or grizzly bear meat, but the certain ethics of it for it all to add up in my head for me to actually pull the trigger on something. I want to contribute to the area that I'm in either by not killing anything or, um, or taking only the right animal right, and then taking the full skin, the skull and all the meat out. But you know, the realization of it is, um, I'll give you a, for instance, I hunted with this guy one time and I told him before I even went on the trip, I said, Hey, I want to take all of my brown bear meat out. And he said, I, w I won't allow it. And I said, come on, man. Like I'm paying you. This is my tag. Right. This is my hunt. Like this is your area, but this, and he said, okay. He said, you can take it out, but you have to strap it to the outside of the airplane we, I won't put it in the airplane. And then when you, when we get back to base camp, it can't go in the skinning shack. I don't want it near anything. So it has to sit outside of the skinning shack and then you have to prep it all. And then it, it just basically made every step along the trip extremely difficult. And right. so the film, The Other Side, is kind of this journey of my own um, coming together of both the literal side of travel, going to these places to go hunt bears, and then also the, you know, the psychology of it, of where my mind travels to, you know, what am I doing when I'm going on these bear hunts? Am I, am I leaving things better than when I found it? Or am I just participating in this idea of trophy hunting, which I, I hate the idea of. And so, but is, am I just the pot calling the kettle black? So it just constant mm -hmm. 
self-reflection. So is that an argument? Are you having that argument with yourself a little bit where are you, are you saying, am I trying to justify my need or desire to trophy hunt through some other means? Is right. that, is that, is that the kind of the conversation that you're having or? Yeah, because, and, and I, it's funny because I come to some of these realizations as I'm doing these things. So when, when I was a kid and reading these incredible books and I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna imprint, imprint this onto you, but I, I'm suspicious of you went through the similar thing, like relating this to your military mm -hmm. career. I'm suspicious of when you entered into the military, what your ideas were, what your vision was, and then going through all of your deployments and then coming out and retiring, mm -hmm. if that's what they call it, you coming out. I'm curious at your afterthought of, of thinking, okay, this was why I went into it. This was the reality of being in it. And this is what it's like when I came out and, and now what my ideas are. And so when I was a kid reading all these books and seeing all these sensational photographs of these guys next to these giant bears or caribou, moose, whatever it be, but let's just stick the bears. I wanted to go to these places. I wanted to hunt these giant bears. I wanted to have my own adventure, not just for the photograph, but I wanted to have my own adventure because seeing these photographs, you know, like I'm telling myself this giant tale that this guy has went through. Like I'm making up my own story based off of this photograph. And then if they're a gifted writer like Jack O'Connor or, or some of the other um, adventure writers, like they're telling me this story in romantic fashion. And so I'm turning these pages and falling in love with the idea of hunting these big bears in these incredibly remote places. But the reality is they never really told me why they were hunting these bears right never really told me the conservation around hunting these bears like what is the contribution if there is a contribution and are you guys even thinking about this contribution and then so when i started going on these trips at first it was just a a um one-to-one -one correlation like here's my money to the outfitter right now i'm in alaska this is incredible i'm seeing the things you know, the words that I read on these pages are coming flooding back to me now because I'm actually seeing the seagulls. I'm seeing the salmon spawning. I'm seeing the bears come out of the forest. So I'm like, oh, this is, this is everything that these guys wrote about. But then seeing the animals and then certainly watching an arrow or a bullet smash into them and seeing their reaction and then die and then breaking them down like so I, then I start to have a whole another set subset of questions and I start to wonder, I start to think, why did these guys, now I'm, now I'm curious why these guys hunted. Right. And I'm curious if it was just a job for them, if it was a love for them. I'm kind of curious if hunting was basically like the man's vacation, mm -hmm. you know, the women went shopping or the women went um, to, you know, a, a sunny resort and laid on the beach and then men grabbed their fishing poles and their high-powered rifles and, and headed north, and that that was the guy's vacation. So I just started to, you know, as as we approach these massive amounts of people on the face of the earth and our wild places shrink more and more right. and more, I just started asking myself these questions. And, of course, watching an animal die, it just just lends to more questions. And so that that's basically the premise. So what... What do you think your your theory? I mean, I think you you kind of just laid it out, but I think about the same things as far as why or what were the motivations of hunters of the past, and 
were there ethics involved? Were they thinking about conservationism? Were they thinking about, uh, or were they just trying to get a bunch of racks, you yeah. know, uh, skulls and racks and tails and, you know, what, yeah. I think it was probably a combination of both, but what, at what point or what, have, what conclusions have you come to? Um, and I agree with you. I think some of those guys probably chased, um, you know, an accolade through a rack or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think also some of those guys, I think back in some of the guys that I've been reading about, you know, some of these guys, this is how they fed their families. Yeah. Not, not only, right, beef mm -hmm. was still accessible to them, raising their own pig was still accessible to them, but shooting a deer, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of like, we, we now talk about it now and, and I see it on social media and it drives me bananas and I'm guilty of it too. But guys say, oh, you know, a dough for the freezer is just as good as a big buck, you know, and they're doing the same thing that I'm kind of doing. They're justifying their idea of hunting. And it's not that the dough for the, it's not that they're not going to eat the dough. It's not that this isn't really good table fare for their family. It is. But it, but they're also using it as as kind of a justification as as why they didn't kill a big buck or why they're just meat hunters or we we love to we love to give ourselves these titles of meat hunter or yeah. trophy hunter or whatever and so I do think that there were guys back then that um, killing a deer was meant you know just extra meat for their family or killing a deer to really um, kind of relinquish some of the pressure that they felt to to put groceries on the table and so. I do think there is that part of it, but um, I think things were sensationalized back then as well because I think there were, just like there are today, I think there were collectors, Yeah. right? There were continents like Africa that were relatively undiscovered from Americans and from Europeans, and so these guys would go there to get their elephants and their lions and their leopards and things like that and return with these big tails, and, you know, it's it's it has those ideas as well, but basically as I started to read all of these stories, it all added up in my head as, as a big adventure that these guys were going on. It didn't, it didn't stop adding up until I started doing some of this stuff myself and just started asking myself, you know, difficult questions. And I remember when I was brown bear hunting for the first time, I think I saw this big bear and, and, uh, I just, I saw him only for maybe 30 minutes or something like that. I could see him moving and I just like my heart's beating out of my chest. I'm like, I want to run down there and stalk this thing and kill it. And, and I lost him right away. And then I saw another one and it was funny because as I started to see these things more and more, the less I wanted to kill one. Mm -hmm. I still want to be successful. I've, I've done three brown bear hunts now and I haven't killed one and I don't know that I'll ever go again, will or won't or, um, but as I started to watch these animals, I was watching this one brown bear one time and he was, he, he fell asleep and I found him and he was literally laying on his forearms. This is, this bear was probably nine and a half feet tall, probably, you know, an 800 pound boar or something like that. Maybe more. He, right. he could have weighed a thousand pounds. I don't know. He's massive, but he's sound asleep. It was really cool because I was just looking at his body. He just slept in the wide open on the tundra. So his whole body was covered in this frosty white. I mean, he looked frozen. But then you just see him sitting there and, you know, he picks his head up and he looks around and you're like, my word, that's an animal, right? So I'm glassing this thing and then I watch him and he gets up and he starts moseying around. And at first you have this 
connection to bears that everyone has like, Ooh, this is a beast. This is, you know, man versus beast. This thing can kill you. This thing, you know, everyone is, they see the bear attack books with the open mouth and the yeah. claws on the cover, you know? So that's, that's your initial like, Ooh, okay. So I'm going to stalk this thing. I have this big, massive creature, but as in anything in my life, even sitting here with you and, and coming to San Antonio, just do this podcast. Like I am paying attention to everything. I am plagued with, I have a detail oriented mind and I enjoy it. I enjoy looking at your new space. I enjoy meeting all your um, crew and even the little knickknacks that are in here. And, and it's Jared. Knickknacks. <laughs> this drives me crazy, man. I'm not gonna lie. His knickknacks and patty wax that he just leaves on the wall everywhere. But I love it. Noticed it. I love I just love all the little details. Everything, everything that we're seeing. So even when I'm looking at this bear, I'm noticing how he walks around. I'm noticing how he smells things. And so my mind. I don't know if other guys do this, but my mind very quickly leaves the idea of stalking and killing him and turns into basically just a naturalist. I'm just watching him from afar because there's really nothing I can do yet. He's so far away that I'm 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 stuck with just watching him. And there is this predatory um switch that gets flipped when when he starts coming closer, I start getting closer and we're going to engage an actual predator and prey relationship. But while I'm just watching him, you know, th this guy, he gets up and he's walking around and I'm watching him kind of sniff the tundra. And then he, this particular bear, he goes down to this big cut bank and he drops into the cut bank. And then I watch him cross and it's fantastic because the cut bank is probably four or five feet deep and I can still see his back sticking out of it when he's walking through it. So he's a massive animal. And then he gets to the other side. He goes up the other side with his paws and you know they're like dinner plates right right so he comes up he gets to the other side and he's laying on his belly trying to get his rear leg up to onto the bank so now he's like now it's as though he's a your giant fat uncle right trying to crawl onto the couch to watch <laughs> right. monday night football right. so all of a sudden this massive bloodthirsty animal that i that I want to engage in predator and prey relationship in now looks like a chubby guy trying to get up on the bank of a river. Right. And now it's become kind of charming. I'm watching him. He's throwing his rear leg up, trying to get it up. And finally his long nails of his back foot hook into the bank. And he kind of just pushes his whole front end onto the bank, slowly stands up and continues to mosey. Not five minutes later, he rolls onto his back. He's rolling around on his back and he's pulling his rear foot. He's trying to do a crunch and he's finally, you know, he's got a massive belly, finally does this crunch and he gets a hold of his rear foot and he pulls his rear foot up and he starts chewing on his toenails. <laughs> and so I'm watching this and, you know, and I'm looking at my guide and I'm watching this and that those are the kinds of things that go through my mind every second that I watch this animal, I want to engage in the predator and prey relationship less and less and less and less and less. And so I don't know, I don't know what that is, but you know, should he have just walked out below me and been walking up the river like a bear does and been fishing and acting like a bear and, um, very likely I would have slipped down, you know, came to full draw and arrowed him and been extremely excited and proud of my accomplishment and, 
And, um, and I would have taken his bear meat. I'm not going to kill one unless I'm going to take his bear meat. And I've made those arrangements with people that I'm hunting with now. I've been very careful with who I hunt with and just said, Hey, you know, I'm taking the bear meat when, when I go, but I, I don't know why my mind goes to, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever went to go do something and then had your mind either talk yourself out of it or other questions started to be raised, whether with business ethics or, or military ethics or anything in your life? Am I weird? No, I think that, I think I've had that so often that sometimes I think maybe I'm the only person, you know, that's, that's had that to the point of which I think we talked about it on our last podcast where I used to climb a lot. Yeah. You know, and then I, I woke up mm-hmm. one morning and was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah. This doesn't like, I don't really enjoy this all that much. Uh, I like being in the wilderness. Yeah. I like experiencing these specific things and <clears throat> the wilderness specifically. And I've, I've done this several times where I've been on trips where, you know, you have a specific objective where for me, I remember a fishing trip that I was on, which was, you know, a week or a week and a half or whatever it was out in a pretty remote part of Idaho. And, um, I just packed my rods away and literally like swam in the Creek and played in the Creek and, and started hiking up and down the Creek and like doing cannonballs off the, yeah. off the rocks. And I was like, for me, I wanted to reconnect with what I wanted out of the wilderness experience from that from that exact moment. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't having fun fishing. It wasn't that I wasn't catching fish. It was, I was catching fish, but what was much better and more appealing to me at that point in time was there was a shoot <laughs> in this rock. There was like, you know, a nice little two, two big rocks in this, in this crystal clear, beautiful Creek. And it had this shoot that ran down through the center. And I kept fishing this section of the river, it kept looking over at it thinking, I bet you that'd be an awesome slide, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I'm an adult. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. And finally I was like, there's nobody out here. Why, yeah. <laughs> why, why am I not just packing my rods away and seeing if that is an awesome slide? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I did, it was actually kind of a turning point because I don't go out just to bag fish or to take these trips where I have a specific objective. My objective is to, interact with the wilderness in a way that makes me happy, mm-hmm. which sounds kind of strange, but no, it's, it it's, it's, it's where I've started to digress into if, if you want to call it a digression, but that I'll, I'll go. It, oftentimes I get asked where, where do I like to hunt mm-hmm. the most? What do I like to hunt the most? And it, it changes all the time. I'm extremely easily entertained out mm-hmm. there much. It sounds like, like you are. Um, seeing anything, small birds, seeing small mammals, seeing flowers, the trees, looking at the seasons, the weather, I'm just paying attention to it all and, and being completely entertained as as though I'm looking at the last fantastic event of, of the day, if you will, you know, it's the whole picture is being painted for me. And so oftentimes when people are asking me like, where, where do you want to go hunt? What is your favorite things to hunt? it's almost always I'm talking about the Arctic or things like that. And the reason is it's, it's so wide open. 
and whether I'm hunting caribou or moose or something like that, um, just the experience of having all the different animals there, having all the different weather there, having this massive history of obviously where people, I, I, I would assume on average with people, you're attracted to the things, at least initially you're attracted to the things that you find most beautiful. If, if I'm in the Arctic and we see, you know, we like to talk about um, big white-maned caribou bulls. We like to talk about big wide rack moose and grizzly bears. You know, people like to describe their grizzled fur blowing in the wind. I've done it many times myself, wolves and northern lights. But there's also all these little tiny details around you, blueberries and the lichens that the caribou eat and the weather itself and just watching the seasons progress. All of these things started to matter to me as much or more as filling my caribou tag or my right. moose tag. And so that's where my hunting has evolved, not through business, not through trying to create films or becoming a filmmaker, but the our films have evolved into trying to encompass those ideas and trying to encompass some of these um, sights and sounds and, and um, you know, trying to share it with everyone through through a lens. And so that's that's what everything has kind of evolved into for me is the total experience. And it sounds very zen, but it really is. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I feel much like an outsider looking in most of the time. Well, I think that, and that's my more of my adult life past 30. I've come to those conclusions where I want to have more of the experience in the sense of I want to look around a little bit more. I want to take my time. I want to understand things versus and when I say understand things, uh, look into the detailed aspects of what's going on versus I had a, you know, from, I don't know, uh, my twenties and probably in my teens, there was an aspect of, uh, uh, competition for some reason where I'm going out to run 10 miles on this trail, mm -hmm. right? There's a start, there's a finish, there's an end objective with a time frame, right? I've got this time, I've got all of these things that I want to just check off, mm -hmm. check, 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 which led into mountaineering, which led into whitewater rafting and kayaking, actually kayaking, whitewater rafting and all these other things. And, uh, now I think because I appreciate the wilderness more because I'm in it less because of yeah. business, mm -hmm. the solitude, the, the quiet aspect of things, I'm trying to get more involved in that. And the, the funny thing is I'm not trying to validate anything, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that I'm trying to validate is I do appreciate this connection with the environment. So that's what I'm trying to do is just connect with that. The funny thing is, is that that becomes an objective, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> For whatever reason, so there's there's this whole question answer which you're talking about, where I'm having this internal dialogue as to well, what would be better, you know? Why don't and I, I what I've come to this conclusion now, where I have to plan. I can't just go out and like experience, like just hang out for three days, or yeah, yeah. I end up not being in, immersed in it or doing something. I have to have an objective or a route, something on the map that I'm trying to get at. 
but allowing myself enough time and or things that I can do outside of that to mm-hmm. I have kids to where, you know, my daughters, I don't want my daughters to think of the, the wilderness as a place that you're there just to do a trail or you're there to camp and build right. a fire and read a book. You know, you're there to interact with the wilderness mm-hmm. and understand it a little bit more, which is an interesting question that we touched on earlier. You said, did I question it in other things in my life? And I think that's at, that is absolutely uh, where I would validate different aspects of my life. Uh, I would try to unpack them, but truly not having the intellectual or emotional capacity to understand them. Uh, and why and why, what it is, my, my pure motivation and then understanding what sacrifice is and what patriotism is and what, what it means to be a family member to a tribe and what loyalty means to that tribe. And there's a, there's this confluence of emotion and psychological, um, I don't know what the right words would be. Actually, it's hard to it's hard to describe. The Japanese probably have a word for it. They have a word for everything. But <laughs> you're you're bound by duty, right? Which mm-hmm. is you have Western ethics and thought that have been built based on culture and what you've read and what you've been indoctrinated with, and then you're bound by the loyalty and the family aspects of your subculture. And then you have competition and ego and all these other things that are involved. Now, getting to the truth, I, I don't know if there is a truth. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. And I wonder, like I've thought, um, about these guys that inspired me, these writers, these mm-hmm. outdoor writers. I wonder if they had the same questions that I have now back then, but they just didn't write about it because it was far more interesting just to tell the tale because they're writing a story for a mm-hmm. magazine or for a book. And same with what I'm doing now, kind of like what you are doing now being a filmmaker, which is not something I ever wanted to do, but I always wanted to share the experience that I was having with an audience. So now being able to do that, it is also opening up my mind of, um, you know, when when we we're doing this latest piece, the other side, and thinking about all of these bear hunts, putting the film together and writing for it, even though I was thinking critically at the time in um, in a particular instance, writing about it and writing it in a manner that is true to myself, but also going to be understood or at least going to open up questions for the audience really allowed me to dive in deeper into my ideas and and what my ideals were being a bear hunter and the questions that I had being a bear hunter. So kind of like what you were just saying, immersing myself and going through this film process, writing for it, editing for it, um, even talking to the uh, Casey Olson, our musician, talking to him about scoring the music and some of the emotions that were going on as we're doing all of these things just made the experiences that much more rich from the wilderness. And and, um, and I'm the same as you. It's, I do <laughs> I do go there with a goal. Yeah. You know, I go out there with, you know, I'm going to spend 22 days in the Arctic. I have a caribou tag. I have um, I know the blueberries are going to come into season. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that I'll arrow a couple of grouse and we'll do some sort of blueberry little dish in the tent and it's going to be awesome. And 
hopefully we get to see the northern stars or those northern lights and we get to see the stars and you know so i have these things that i want to selfishly fulfill my mind with and right. if we and if i'm able to shoot a caribou it's going to be incredible and we're going to eat really well and and um i have these weird you know we talk about this idea of of trophy and it's always a negativity for me it's the weirdest phrase um that i think hunters have saying oh i'm a trophy hunter or i'm not a trophy hunter and and then of course the non-hunting community and i actually just spoke about this i did a, a relatively fast interview for a online magazine called the modern uh, with this writer and i called trophy hunters i didn't call them but i was talking about this idea with her this idea that trophy hunters are these fat, white, ultra wealthy men that are out being collectors, looking for inches right. of antlers, and and uh, and she wrote it in the story, and and I got called out by a few people, which which I enjoy the conversations, but I think about this idea of people chasing certain things, and it has a negative connotation in my mind. Yet, if I'm successful in killing a caribou, I skin the whole animal out for a rug and when i'm sitting in camp and i have a fire going and i'm cooking it's you know back straps over the fire i have strips of the meat cooking over the fire i have the hide draped over a log that i'm fleshing and i have the skull and the antlers sitting over there all of those things i guess would be trophies if you want to look at it in the sense of the word but for me it's so fulfilling to live my life in that manner of being you know, we don't have the luxury now of immersing ourselves in the wilderness like you could decades right. ago as a mountain man yeah. and really live in the wilderness, really embody everything that's around you and live and die there. Whether you slip and fall and, and break your femur, you're probably going to die right there in that ravine unless unless something, um, you know, a, a miracle, if you will, happens and you're able to get a tourniquet on and you keep infection right. out and you lose your leg. and but you know, you're kind of all in, in these instances, we don't really get to do that anymore. So this is, this is kind of the representation of my ride, right? This is my idea of how I want to live my life and how I want to immerse myself in the wilderness and the things that I want to experience. And we're here for such a short time. And we have really individually, unless you are a, a massive figure in the world um we have such little impact right whether we have a lot of money or a little money we have such little impact on the world around us that selfishly this is just how i want to live my life but i also realize now through film and through sharing this work that i am able to my messages is uh or my ideas are going to get carried on maybe even beyond my life and mm -hmm. and maybe this work will get watched even after i die whether that be you know, in, in 50 years or next October. Right. And so I, I just, I don't even know what I'm, what I'm trying to, um, trying to say, but when, when, when writing for this film and realizing that the, these ideas of, of how we engage with the wilderness, these ideas of, um, of, you know, leaving it, better than we found it whether that be even a little tiny bit or a massive amount um just just trying to do little tiny things and and um like if, if we're going to improve if we're going to improve a little piece of habitat 
if you will. We don't, we're not really doing anything to the world. We're not, but we are changing that, that neighborhood just a little tiny bit. Mm. And same with releasing these films. I'm probably, we're probably not having, um, a tremendous effect on how people see the world and how people see hunters and bear hunters, but maybe we're, we're raising just a little bit of a question, just enough to, to, uh, start a conversation or to, to answer some people that are unsure of things, but it's literally the tiniest little things of how we want to do things, how we want to engage with others. And, and it all comes down to how we want to, I think how we're, how we're, how we think we're engaging with, with the audience, if you will. Yeah, I could see that. I, I think that it's a good conversation to have across the board with, with everybody within society. Like one good aspect of social media, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, which is opening up a dialogue if you can have a positive dialogue with a large group of people that expands the, the understanding of a subject. So for instance, the hunting community has been on a decline since when? 1980 something. Oh, yes. Yeah, I would and, say something like that. Yeah. And I think that the people that interact with the wilderness on so many different levels today have a greater amount of knowledge when it comes to interacting with the wilderness, which has led us to more being better stewards of the environment. And this is a contradiction that I see even within the hunting community. And I, I was listening to another podcast about it where there are a huge, there, there is such a large percentage of the American population that don't respect the environment when they, when they go out into it. It's a place for them to recreate. It's, it's purely, um, it's a cornucopia of activity that they can just kind of. Yeah fulfill any whim that they want it was built for them yes it's given to them yeah it's yeah. it's 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 my you know trampoline arena or whatever yeah. it might be whereas i don't believe that you know i'm probably in an extreme minority of uh pro hunting environmentalists that truly believe that we have to protect and preserve what we have for more generations to come because if we don't my daughters and my, no. my, they won't have the same interaction respect. No. And I don't think that people, given the correct inter interaction with the wilderness, it gives you, it gives you so much more than, than when I say you, you can never give it back. Right. Mm -hmm. And for me, it, <clears throat> that's what it does, which is provides me so much that I have to respect this mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a place of, of tremendous power uh and not to you know become so um i guess uh i don't know a meditative state mm -hmm. about it but it is it's but, very much empowering to be out there and it's it's been um it's actually been proven um multiple times over of i mean now in the day and age of reducing screen time is right. your creativity does go up mm -hmm. your um, intrinsic value and your intrinsic mental health and your happiness goes up and doubling that if you then immerse yourself into the wilderness um, your creativity and your open-mindedness and your happiness go go up even more I wish 
I see a whole contingent contingent of people and I get to have these conversations, which I really enjoy through the film, but I see this whole contingent of people that, and this sounds completely close-minded or small-minded, but the, the people that generally call the city home, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not going to say city folks, but people that generally do not leave the city, they, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, security blanket is that starbucks is on the corner the grocery store is only four blocks away and man every time i walk in that grocery store every single time there's broccoli every single time there's broccoli in there and there's fresh meat and you know i just came from i just came from a, a film that we were doing on tiburon island in mexico there is no water on the island so all the water that you are going to drink for a six, seven, eight, nine day period, depending on how strong you are, physically, literally how strong you are, that's the water that you have in your pack. And so when you have people that are in the city or you have people that aren't going into the wilderness, whether you be a vegan, a vegetarian, an environmentalist, a tree hugger, a hunter, a fisherman, if you are not going, if you are not participating, actually rolling your sleeves up and getting dirty, then your idea of how it should be is going to be skewed. Right. Half of the letters that I receive that are negative, which are very, very few, it's from people that aren't participating out there. It's from people that, and even if they, you know, you actually have to go. You actually have to 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 get your hands dirty. And I, I talk about it in this latest film, but when when we're out there, and I know you understand this, but when 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 you're out there, whether you want to get water or you want to eat something other than the food you brought, whether it be blueberries or you want to eat a grouse or eat a fish, you have you have chores that you have to take care of then yeah. to, to get these things done. Right. And I think if more people understood that, people love to sit back and profess um, preservation and profess, you know, you hunters, get out of there, fishermen, get out of there, let these lands fall wild again. That's That's just not going to happen with 8 billion people. And I'm just hoping, like you said with your daughter, I'm just hoping that people are cognizant enough that we start to save these areas. And I, and I don't even know how to do that because how do you do that when the human population just keeps going up exponentially? How do you, I mean, how do we even, I know we're fighting for little things right now, whether that be pheasants forever fighting for, you know, another million acres to be turned back mm-hmm. into CRP or battling with farmers to get away from row crops and get back into, you know, natural farming and right. different things like that. But I, I know we're fighting for quick wins. I did it myself. I have a hunting lease that I planted 26 acres of warm season grasses on, which is really funny because when it was a cornfield, it was a muddy parking lot. I planted warm season grasses and all of a sudden this summer when I'm walking out there, I'm seeing a ton of snakes and frogs and turtles right. and all of these things on the property. And and you think, you know, did I make a difference in the world like we were just talking about? No. Did I make a difference on that 26 acres? Holy man alive, I made right. a huge difference. And so I don't know. <laughs> I I hate the doomsday attitude. I, I can't stand it. But either there has to be checks and balances for something that's coming up here, right? right. I mean, the humans were doing so well. Like, do you think... This idea of like Manhattan, New York, okay, this idea. Do you think we're trending towards a concrete jungle, stem to stern, everywhere? 
everywhere that humans can reside, everywhere that there's enough food and water and horizontal space for humans to lay down concrete and build a dwelling, is that what we're trending towards until there is a major event, whether that be war or disease? What do you think? Well, yeah, I think that I don't think it'll get to that point because I think there's going to be some type of catastrophic event that will ultimately check the population being yeah. based on overpopulation. Yeah. I think that's, if anything, nature has proven to us yeah. is that they can control population. Yeah. Right. Or when I say they, it can control yeah. overpopulation. So I think we would be extremely naive to believe that we could beat the system. Yeah. I don't think we can. Even if we do. Let's say we trend towards this idea that I just said, this concrete jungle. Mm -hmm. Even if we get to that point, something's going to rear its ugly yes. head. Yeah. Yeah. It's disease or- It's, it's disease. It's, yeah, it's disease. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's the thing that I, as I look back on my life, because I've lived with basically zero fear, uh, my adult life, when I say that, fear over- insignificant things. Mm -hmm. My fear now is because of my children is making sure that they understand, have some sort of connection to the environment and that they can sustain themselves intellectually and physically in a world that's not more complex. It just has more people and the complexities of people are the challenges that they have to be prepared to, 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 overcome mm -hmm. because people are inherently great and they're inherently evil right when mm -hmm. we look at all of the, the the great things that the planet has to offer i think with this manhattan idea of you know these superstructures and concrete jungle across the entire world in reality i think that we're, the population will be checked if it gets to that point yeah i just hope that Guys like Elon Musk have found a way for us to get off this rock and get onto a different one. <laughs> yeah. To be honest with you, yeah, uh, because but that looks it, like it, a super sad place to me, man. But isn't that funny? Even as people, we almost rather than thinking about improving our own planet, you know, we're almost thinking about where's the next place that we can go you know and it's funny I, but i think that's 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 human nature again well i think that's right? i think that's nature i think that's nature, nature wanting to expand right. even when we were back even when we had 31 or however many original colonies that we had mm -hmm. when we were separated more often than not we were separated by geographical barriers right oceans ravines glaciers that's what kept these tribes separate if you will but then you know, invariably we built boats that could right. go a certain distance and then we built big boats into ships right. and then we could, and then we found guys like you who were, uh, could face their fears, maybe not be fearless, but could face their fears and swallow their, and still stand tall. And, and we found guys like you that would get on the ship and say, all right, Evan, we're going to send you east. We honestly, and I'm looking you straight in the face, we have no idea what is east of us. But we're going to send you east, and hopefully you come back with uh, great stories and and maybe some goods, maybe a map, and maybe a map, <laughs> and maybe you can draw something while you're going. And I've been thinking more and more about that. I think with the um, you, there's there's the huge debate over public and private lands. Obviously, yes. I think we we we. we 
I don't know if we touched on that in the last episode or not. I don't think so. But no. what, I, I'm a, it's, it, and, I, and I've talked to my, my business partner and it's funny because the guy that owns and runs Black Rifle Coffee and everybody automatically thinks that I side with a party, you know, the, the conservative party yeah. and everything, right? And it's like, absolutely not. No you, way, no, I, no way, shape, or form do I agree with everything uniformly. I wouldn't be sitting here if you did, to be honest <laughs> with you. My partner and I were talking about this because I, because my other company is the Frank Church, and we talked about that a lot. Where public lands and the and the the need for management in public lands and for public lands to be protected. When I say that, like we need to have land that is protected. And that has to be protected by the government. I definitely think that's the responsibility of it. I agree. Um, I do not think that private individuals and businesses have the ability to manage the environment effectively because they've proven time and time again, as inept as I think the government is at times, we have enough nas national parks at this point to demonstrate that they they are relatively good stewards of the people of protecting millions of acres yes and i couldn't agree more it really uh it's a frustrating conversation for me when i talk to guys that say we should privatize this and turn it over to companies and or individuals that will ultimately and utah is a big state for this and idaho and mm -hmm. wyoming and these are big states for this conversation mm -hmm. what will happen is that that the property that you used to hunt on that your family hunted on for generations and enjoyed generation after generation of of amazing interaction with the wilderness mm -hmm. will be fenced Mm -hmm. And it will be somebody else's. And, and they, even if they lie to you, and it will be a lie. It will be. Even if they say, oh, we're, no, 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 no. We're yeah. going to keep this natural. Right. We're, no, we're keeping this. That will be just until the contract is signed. Right. And then even if it doesn't happen immediately then, the clock is ticking because the second that corporation gets the opportunity to say, oh, well, now hold on a second, uh, this uh, corporation from China wants to purchase this mm. for $9 billion. And if you see in my bank account right now, I only have 1 billion. Right. So 9 billion is more than more one. than 1 billion. So I'm going to be able to take my 9 billion now and go do good work other places. And it's going to be a really Merry Christmas at my house. And so I'm going to sell this. And that's exactly what will happen if, if the government relinquishes the, but the only good thing I'd say about private lands and it's and it's it's selfish and it's exactly what i would do if if i had the if i had the cash if i was a billionaire i would be buying as much land as i possibly could right now to make to basically do my own little version of a national park mm -hmm. i would do this and and obviously only my family and friends and and people that I knew people that I met would be able to use it, but still that's what I would do. I'd make my own little microcosm. And I think some private guys are doing some really good sure. efforts in that regard, but taking our public lands and converting them to private um, is not the way. Having, having people raised with the type of morals and ethics to where when they buy land, they keep it wild 
you know, that is, that's a tremendous lesson right there to have mm-hmm. people as, especially these influencers, which you are, um, as these people start to acquire properties and keeping them natural that, you know, that's, that's going to be my very favorite type of person. I don't care what, um, what party you belong to, but if you keep your lands natural and, and try to improve them, then we're very likely going to be friends. And, uh, but yeah, if, if we make the public lands private, it, it, not only is it going to start the stopwatch, it's going to be the final nail in the coffin. Then mm-hmm. that is probably the final piece to this idea that I am have thought about this Manhattan project, if you will, where everything is going to start to be built out. And so I just, uh, yeah, we have to keep public lands for the public. Yeah, and I think that's, we you described the, what I call the lose-lose for the public, which is the corporate interest fence off individual exploitation of the land. Mm -hmm. Then there's the naturalist in us, because I would do the same thing, by the way. So, however, I also think that that would be ethically wrong of me because the wilderness and and having a a company that operates within a wilderness area is, is an interesting aspect of this because I know how important it is to get people out into the environment yeah. that have never been there before. Yeah. Because we fight that on a, on the other end, which is the trim back of access to the wilderness area. And we are in constant threat of getting permits pulled altogether. Mm-hmm. And it's not the economic interest that I'm afraid of losing. I'm afraid of losing access mm-hmm. because of the experience that the the Frank Church provides me every year and the experience that I wanted to continue to provide my friends and family every year because we are good stewards of of the environment. Mm -hmm. We do respect it. We wouldn't go to the middle of the Frank Church to, you know, shit in the river and throw our trash around. Mm -hmm chop down trees and disrespect something that's that's so important to the family Mm -hmm. that's given my entire life of experience education and interaction and not necessarily to come to that conclusion because i came to that conclusion a long time ago but i think that's the important part of the the public private land conversation is getting people out to experience the wilderness in a way that is beneficial to them Mm -hmm. while also educating them to make sure that it's it's there to continue to be experienced for generations because i do think that there there is a a relatively large percentage of the population that feel and or think that it, it is acceptable to exploit the environment in every way shape or form possible that it's there for their own they think you it know, was created for us, yeah. right? Yeah, they yeah. think it was created for yeah. us. Yeah, And that's, for me, uh, that's, uh, it's interesting because, you know, gun-toting, pro-hunter, environmentalist, pe- people are like, you can't be those things. I'm like, you absolutely can. You can be whatever you want. Doesn't, yeah, <laughs> you actually can. <laughs> you, yeah. you actually can. It's funny because uh, I think somebody's on Rogan's podcast and they're talking about it. And I was like, yeah, that that is that's interesting because there are, I think there are a lot of us out there that feel the same way. Yes, like please don't speak 
and think that the entire party is speaking and or I'm going to be divided into two camps. The If you're a complex human being with a minimal amount of introspection, education, and experience, you will never fall into just two camps. How could you it's, possibly... It's crazy. How could you possibly say, yes, this stack of check boxes are exactly who I am? Right. Uh, how could you not be like, I like six boxes here. I like four over here. <laughs> this lunatic over here actually has two amazing boxes that he's talking about. So that's kind of where I span. And that I, I, I just talked to a friend of mine. This is a little bit off the subject, but I instantly thought of you. Uh, he has, uh, this guy here is, um, he's very inner city, mm-hmm. found hunting late in life. He uh, basically, he didn't have this notion that meat comes from the grocery store, but he did have this notion of why in the world would you injure or maim, kill a wild animal when you can just get your meat from the grocery store. And, right. But um, through through his own- I've um, heard that conversation a lot, by the way. Like, yes. <laughs> that, is a, oh, oh, that, is a, that is a very large percentage of the population. There right? are, uh, people say it as a joke, but there are a significant population of people that think- the cellophane wrapped meat in a grocery store did not suffer or die right. or bleed out or mm-hmm. because hamburger looks like hamburger, right? right. You, you, and, and even when you look at broccoli or you look at green beans or whatever it is that you're looking at, you have no idea the footprint that went into that mm-hmm. thing. And it is massive. And it's all for us. It's, it's all, all for, for us. us. Yeah. So it's, you know, this is, and it's funny because I, I think about things like that. And then I think about, you know, when you and I are up in the Arctic and I arrow a grouse and I clean it and we sit there and eat every little, like we're sharing ounces of this thing with each other. And Oh, Evan, are you having, yeah, it's good. Okay. It's really good. Yeah, we're having a, okay. You get two chunks of onion. Right. I get two chunks of onion. Like you, when you have resources that are limited, even situationally, which that mm-hmm. is, it's like we're pretend, it's like we're pretend camping. Mm-hmm. We're pretend mountain men for the 21 days that we're in the Arctic which like I told you before, that's my ride. I want to pretend for 21 days, 30 days. I want to do it as much as possible because this is my life and we're here for a second and Mm -hmm. then we're gone. And so um, this idea that meat from the grocery store didn't suffer, you didn't have to get blood on your hands. So this guy, he kind of came around. Right. He's, he met some hunters. They introduced him to the idea of hunting and then he has fallen in love with it. But he um, recently purchased his son, I think he has a 17-year-old, a gun, his first pistol. And he was telling it to a buddy of his and his buddy, who's an inner city kind of hipster type guy, was so offended by the fact that he purchased a firearm and gave it to his son. Like, what are you doing? You're contributing to, you know, the demise of human beings. And they kept talking. And then this guy that was mortified by this said, well, uh, he made mention of something in his own life where he owned a firearm. Mm-hmm. And my friend was like, whoa, 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 you own a gun? And he said, whoa, yeah, I own a gun. And um, it, so he's like, back back this bus up, man. Like, back this bus up. And they were, I won't go down this road, but they were, originally they were talking politically. They right. were trying to figure out, like, who they're going to vote for in, in, uh, this, in this last presidency and election. And, and um, this gentleman owns a gun because he says, and I quote, 
we are one step away from a rabies vaccine mixing with something like the swine flu right and having a zombie apocalypse (laughs) (laughs) so he he, so so this 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 law-abiding citizen that has a firearm literally is taking biological elements that have no connection whatsoever a killed rabies vaccine right with <laughs> a swine flu i mean literally he might as well have said it's a matter of time before us a, a c4 transport plane and a toyota tacoma turn into a transformer i mean it is a matter of time it's a matter of time <laughs> it's before a matter of time before those two collide and so so this gentleman obviously a subscriber to many sci-fi channels obviously owns so and then i'm curious so i do believe that i'm speaking for him so he has this idea that a zombie apocalypse is coming and i'm just curious what his and his snub nose 38 caliber are going to do during this i would think if i was so sure that these two diseases a killed vaccine and an actual disease right. or an actual virus right if I was so sure these two things were about to, I would, I would probably have more than one pistol, and I'd probably have one that shot a greater distance than eight feet. In theory, in theory, unless he's just saving it for himself, then oh, it could be just a well, matter I didn't even of think like, about that. Hey, I just need this and one bullet, but yeah, I just need one <laughs> because then it's you, that's your ticket to ride out of here okay if he's just got his ticket to ride yeah. that's i mean that's one thing so but I, there are so easier ways than that too right that that's what i think about it's like this guy i bet so so we're talking firearms mm-hmm. and politics but i bet if you sat him down and asked him about the wilderness mm-hmm. he's going to have similar skewed ideas you know to that and and then even i've had conversations with people even some of my neighbors and some other people where you know, I'll, in conversation, I'm talking and I'll say, oh, yesterday I saw a, a beautiful coyote near my house, you know, and, and I'll have people that are in my neighborhood, if you will, and they'll say, where? And I'll say, well, right here. Why? And coyotes don't live around here. And and I bring that up because that's what I'm talking about. These people are making decisions on elements of life that they have no idea about. And really, if we could introduce all of them, even and I don't like the hunters versus, versus vegans, hunters versus vegetarians. I don't think those two dichotomies of people are even related in any regard as far as like a, a battle or a war. Or I eat meat and you don't eat meat. I think I've said this before and I said it to Rogan. Yeah. I think vegetarians, maybe not vegans, I don't, I don't fully understand that, but I think vegetarians and and hunters have more in common than than people that don't know what they're living for, don't right. know what they're interested in. But um, I do think that if we could get people to the wilderness, if we yeah. could open their minds up and even, I would even, I have a, a friend of mine's wife, she's very much against any animal abuse as we all are. Mm-hmm. But she's also, if she were going to pick a side, she'd probably be an anti-hunter. However, at dinner parties or whatever, her and I can sit and talk about hunting for, um, for hours. And, uh, and, and she has an open mind about the way that I hunt. And so, and I, I told her, um, I said, I would love to take you hunting sometime. 
and have you kill a deer or even a rabbit or a squirrel, something and not force you. That's the wrong term, but I'd love to take you, have you kill a squirrel, you skin it, you cut it up, we'll cook it together and we'll eat it together. I would love to do that with you even just once Mm -hmm. and then sit down and have this conversation again. And, um, you know, she crosses her arms and says, I, you know, I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And I know why she can't do it because she puts herself, and I do this too. She puts herself, she becomes the squirrel. Right. So that's what I, that's what I did with the first bear that I Mm -hmm. couldn't kill as I became the bear. You know, I thought, well, you know, not really, but I thought this probably not going to, you know, I'm the executioner here. So everything that this bear experiences right now is up to me. And so I think that's what she embodies too, is being the executioner. But should we, should, let's say her and I were backpacking or let's say her and I were in a um, airplane crash in the Frank Church yeah. wilderness mm-hmm. area and we were out there and we were lost for greater than, I'll say, five days and I and nothing was in, and let's just, let, for sake of argument, no mushrooms are in season. Mm-hmm. No berries are in season, you know, and and I was able to kill a squirrel or a rabbit or a grouse with whatever. Um, I guarantee you she'd be the first one at the dinner table. Oh, yeah. Guaranteed. Yeah. Because that's experiencing not true hunger, but you're starting to trend into that. You're starting to trend into the idea of, of I really am hungry. So a lot of my, you know perceived morals and ethics i'm going to tuck those things away so i can eat a little bit of this grouse meat to feel stronger and you know so i i I just the society we live in even the one that i live in afforded by gentlemen like you i get to walk around i get to fly to i get to fly to san antonio from minneapolis last night to come and do a podcast with you there are a lot of other countries that you can't do this right yeah so i just it's appreciated and and i'm aware I think it's so interesting because within social media, because I mean, the two of us obviously spend some time interacting in social yes. media and everybody has an opinion today. Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. has an opinion so that the vegan and hunter camps, right? The teams, however we want to play that out. They're, I don't like putting people into those camps necessarily. I think that it's it's fun and funny for me to poke fun at both camps depending on the scenario because the diehard vegans that are, you know, they're going to create a, a a litany of data that can validate their opinion whether it right or wrong, they don't actually know because they weren't in the lab conducting the tests mm-hmm. nor because there's such a small amount of people that have actually done that and, and for, it, for such a short period of time short period of time and on the other side there are a lot of people that just re- regurgitate information that has been pushed out to them so it's it's this conversation that's kind of loud and obnoxious and it's funny just to kind of watch it from the outline from the outside however you've yeah been in that yeah so from my from my perspective i look at it and like these conversations are a little bit crazy a tiny bit yeah, yeah a little bit crazy because what you're doing is not illegal uh what you're doing would not be considered even unethical no 
I won't, uh, I wouldn't do it otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. And so the, but there is a minority of people that believe in what they're telling you and would come, will come after you mm -hmm. for something that is legal and generally considered ethical. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but you're, uh, an environmentalist, mm -hmm. I would classify you Absolutely. as. Absolutely. And you're an educated man that mm -hmm. can make his own decisions. So there's so many layers of you being in this conversation and having the ability to talk from a position of authority from your perspective. However, the when I say another side will continue to... to attack guys like you for what you do without any ability to listen because they, they're not ethically obligated to listen to you. Yep. Nor do they, nor do they count any form of your experience, uh, your intellectual capacity, your education. Any of those things are completely discounted in that mm -hmm. conversation based on regurgitated data and a lack of probably experience in a lot of different ways. Because I guarantee there are few, very few biologists, former hunters that have turned vegan, that have attacked you for your way of life. Yeah, and even if they have become vegan, I would hope it's for something that their gastrointestinal system has told them sure. to do, like something biologically, physiologically for them. But you're right, like when when – Case in point would be the mountain lion that I killed mm -hmm. last February. Yeah. Uh, I get the most, hands down, the most negative uh, mail, emails, responses that I've ever gotten in my life for anything for that mountain lion, which was, it's not ironic. I understand it. It's, it's, uh, it's a really big, beautiful animal that is not something that people... Um, it doesn't make sense in their minds for killing and eating an animal. It's not a deer. It's not mm -hmm. a moose. It's not yeah. an elk, which, which those animals appear more cow-like mm -hmm. for all of us. And, and then our, our fowl appear to be more chicken-like for all of us. So people, it, it makes sense in people's minds. So, but literally I met with the regional biologist because even though I'm a biologist and even though I have interest in the natural world, I don't know what's going on in that neighborhood of BC right. where I was going. And so a friend of mine invited me up to go hunt this mountain lion. I said, I, I, I don't want to come up and hunt a mountain lion. I have no interest in killing a mountain lion. I have no interest in how you gentlemen hunt mountain lions. I have no interest in running an animal with dogs, treeing it and shooting it out of a tree. And he said, well, I have to kill a couple of lions here anyway. Um, the biologists are telling him he needs to kill a couple of lions out of there. So he said, why don't you come experience it? If you don't want to kill the lion, I'll kill the lion because I have to do it. If it's the right lion to kill, you know, he's not going to kill a, a female with pups or, right. or kittens or whatever. And, um, and so why don't you come experience the hunt? Then you can actually speak to it intelligently. You can come, we'll meet with the regional biologist. So I did all of that and I get so many letters, and I think most of them are Europeans judging by their insults. Their insults are brilliantly harsh, but yeah. they, they tell me, they, they accuse me of killing an endangered species. And I don't know how that works. Now, we did, there's this idea of, um, everyone's heard the, the term 
exterminated, right? Mm-hmm. That's, this thing's gone extinct. Mm-hmm. The animal's gone. There's also a term called extirpated, mm-hmm. which means an animal is extinct from an area that it used to live, right? The United States right. used to be covered in grizzly bears. It's now extirpated from grizzly bears other than like Montana and a right. few other states. So the mountain lion used to range everywhere in the lower 48 mm-hmm. and have um, huge numbers or big numbers anyway. And at the turn of the century, when people were expanding west, um, we extirpated them out of a lot of these areas because we thought as settlers, we had to get rid of the wolves, the grizzly bears. We had to get rid of our competition right. because they were also after the elk and after the bison and after these animals that we wanted to eat. Um, and there's a lot of also, there's a lot of really gross things where, you know, the slaughtering of the buffalo and things mm-hmm. like that. People have always done, like you said, fantastically good and fantastically evil. You know, we do great good. We do great harm, mm-hmm. right? This, this human beings have been the greatest example of that. I think the world has ever seen. And so, you know, however, the mountain lion through the conservation of hunters and through, um, probably, a lot more accurate data um, acquired through houndsmen have biologists have actually started to put their fingers on these populations now and starting to realize they're healthier than they thought. And they're actually starting to travel into some territories that they used to live in. And they're starting to establish more populations back to where they originally were. So their populations are doing well. And in, in areas where wilderness is really, uh, pristine and and um, and not overhunted, and there's a lot of food. The populations start to get a little overpopulated. So sometimes you have to go into a neighborhood and remove a couple of mm-hmm. individuals. I think you sent me a photo. Yeah, from, from my house. Yeah, in Colorado. Yeah, and how many yeah. cats were in the yard? Four. Four. Yeah. So you know that's a female with three kittens yeah. or whatever it is, and and so a person might say, "Oh my word, you have four lions in your yard." We we have to kill at least three of them. Well, that doesn't really add up because that's a right. female with kittens and there's, you know, they're going to get pushed the, out to new they're territories. They're going to go out and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and so, so they're going to define what their territory are. And, and from what I understand, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but cats will ultimately populate an area. When I, when I say this, it could be completely wrong. But from what I understand, uh, they will go out and populate an area where there isn't another cat preferably. Right. And they'll assume basically this is my territory and they typically won't overlap for extended periods of time. They'll pretty much stay to their track. Yeah, because they'll fight to to the death. Right. Like if two males occupy a singular territory, like somebody's either leaving or dying. It, but from what I understand, they don't actively seek that fight. It's more of... Out I'm going to stay over here. Yeah. You stay over there. If we happen to meet, we're going to fuck each other up. That's right. But yeah. I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. Yeah. I'm and not it's gonna, probably, I'm this. if they do meet and fight, it's over food or, or sex. Yeah. Right? Food or sex it, is where they're going to intersect. That's how it's going to work. Yeah. But you're exactly correct. And so, um, and then this starts to beg the question. This is the question that I had. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I know I'm in the right neighborhood. I know the biologists want a couple of lions killed out of here. But then I started to ask, and I do this everywhere I go, I kind of want to know what the legends are. I want to know what the wives' tales are. I want, I want to know what the misinformation is or, or where, these, where these ideas kind of lie. And this is where my mind is probably a little weirder than most. But So I asked the biologist, okay, so you want a couple of cats killed out of here. Um, why? And so then he starts to tell me, and, and I'm very open about this, but he starts to tell me how many bighorn sheep 
are being killed in this area by these cats. And mm -hmm. they're really being, they get hammered pretty hard by the cats and same with the mule deer. Now the mule deer, they're very successful in this area. There's a lot of them. And so the cats do very well with them, but it's kind of an irrelevance, if you will. But the sheep, there are not a lot of right. them. And the sheep are very expensive to hunt. They're very expensive to transplant. There's a lot of uh, attention, a lot of publicity around the sheep because they're big horns. They're beautiful. People come to see them. They occupy the cliffs. And so it's a, you know, it's a, an attractive megalofauna. Well, is in Correct me, because I, I don't know enough about this, but so is it their procreation cycle that, is it is it longer? Do they not? The sheep? They, yeah, yeah. It's it's lack of habitat. Lack it, of it's, habitat. It's lack gotcha. of habitat, and and um, and so it's getting better. Like um, Wild Sheep Foundation and, and different conservation groups have been spreading sheep around. Um, for instance, I was just on Tiburon Island in Mexico, sheep uh do not naturally live there sheep were brought there i think in the 1950s or 60s they've done extremely well there and the island has done really well with sheep there and so um and there are other areas of alaska and and um and of course we also get movement of animals when you know with geographical you know ice bridges things like that where animals have moved around but we've also placed them around and back in territories where they used to be where they're extirpated from but they mm -hmm. come back and do very well so this is a subpopulation of California bighorns in this area. And, and so I just, I'm curious, and are we hunting and killing? And these are just questions that I have. There are no really, this isn't a one-to-one -one correlation. Right. This isn't an exact single variable uh, problem, but are we, so am I killing these cats because they're killing too many sheep? And ultimately the answer boils down to yes, that we are trying to preserve this population of sheep does this area need cats removed? Um, as you just indicated, the wilderness has enough room for the cats. The cats will kind of self-police each other. Mm -hmm. However, you know, the bighorn sheep are are falling prey. And they showed me data of this one cat that killed something like 26% of the herd in one year. This single male cat. And so... That is an effective predator. That's oh, that's <laughs> they are extremely talented. Yeah. But yes, I went in there, I tracked this calf for twenty-two kilometers by foot. It was in these really nasty, icy, dangerous cliffs. Mm. Um, too dangerous to have the dogs out. So we, I just tracked him by foot with my friend Ben. And uh, it was really a rewarding experience. We actually he brought us to ten or eleven of his previous kills. I don't know if he was kind of swing through his grocery store mm. or if he was trying to ditch us onto his kills. I doubt it was that. That sounds very anthropomorphic to think about. But the biologist did mention that these particular cats have a lot of pressure from wolves. Oh, so they're trying to ditch because that, the wolf will stop by the kill that's and right. they'll be held up. Gotcha. So the wolves, yep. where cats live, cats are a lot more successful at killing than the wolves. So the wolves know this. And the, if it's two or more wolves, they'll just bully a cat off its kill and take it. Oh, okay. So the wolves start to just, it starts to kind of be a slighted symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. Instead of hunting for themselves and wasting energy and trying to come up with a scheme and a tactic, they'll just follow the cat, wait for him to kill gotcha. and steal it. Right. Um, so these cats will kind of do this killing and caching of food so that they can go and eat in peace. And so he led us through all these things and then we finally got him up into an area. We didn't get him up. He led to an area. Um, and I could have killed him once. We've, the last place um, we tracked him into, 
he was actually on a mule deer kill from the night before. Mm. Uh, and I was bow hunting at the time. Had I been rifle hunting, I could have killed him right then. He was probably 80 yards away on top of the kill. Um, and then he left up and started to go up into the dark forest. We tracked him up there and we did release the dogs right at the end. The dogs got on his track, trailed him, treed him. I ended up killing him. I want, uh, Ben was going to kill him anyway. I kind of wanted to see it out myself. Um, you know, and it was, and it was, it was fantastic to see the hounds and it was fantastic to see them do their job. And it was, it was even pretty fantastic to see the houndsman. He was a nice, nice guy, tremendous care for his dogs. So it was, it was, it was interesting to see the whole idea come to fruition. I understand the negativity around the letters. I understand people saying, I, I understand their, their mistake of thinking that this is an endangered species. It's not. And I understand why the visceral response they have in seeing me, you know, and we published a picture um, carrying this cat and which was kind of at the time. Now it feels, now I feel like kind of an uh, asshole doing it. But at the time it was kind of cool because one of the guys that we were with, um, when we, when, when I'm standing there in the snow and the cat is dead, I just thought, you know, how do we, how do we, how do I do this thing justice for myself? Mm -hmm. I like the suffer when you kill a moose or a caribou and you skin it, cut it up, fill your backpack with it. But that doesn't really work for a cat. I suppose you could do that. But, um, and he just kind of casually mentioned, he said, well, you know, the old timers carried them out. And I just thought, oh, that, and I just instantly, I'm such a romantic guy that I just instantly pictured this old timer you know, with his lever action 30-30, right. his buckskin gloves that his wife made or whatever. I do this thing all the time. But having a cat on his shoulder or over his shoulders and carrying it out. And so that's why we did it. But, um, you know, so I did the whole experience. Is Was it the greatest hunt of my life? No, but I don't even really know what that means. For me, the greatest hunt of my life is you and I sharing time in the Arctic and, and arrowing a couple of caribou or shooting them with rifles or whatever and and experiencing that that entirety of the trip and all of the different nuances that we've been describing on this podcast that's that'd probably be the greatest hunt of my life but i now understand it i asked a, a few difficult questions to the biologist who gave me more information than i had going into it i understood now that this cat that was approaching 180 some pounds was God. only two and a half years old wow two and a half years right. old and so i'm holding his, <laughs> i'm holding his hind quarter which is this ball of meat and realizing that, oh, okay. So this guy's cell division, he went from a sperm and an egg to this thing in two and a half years, three years, if, if you're counting the incubation period, if you will, but just incredible. And then the other thing that came to concept for me or came to my mind was when I scun him out, when he was finally skinned, just seeing his proportions, it didn't hit me until he was, until I was looking at his pieces, but they basically weigh the same as a deer, but they're built entirely different, right? So then I started getting excited about the biology of this animal and the purpose that it held, looking at, you know, essentially his ankles are built for jumping, you know, 30 feet out of a tree and something that would break a deer's leg. And then you look at how his power and how his claws are designed, his canines, so then you start to look at the design of these animals. And and so that was very interesting to me. So I'm glad I did it, but did it answer some questions for people? Maybe because I, I did get a lot of questions from people or, or um, letters from people that didn't realize you could eat it. 
And it was one of the finest wild game meats I've ever eaten in my life. It was unbelievable. We, we cooked it and almost never did it make the table. It's kind of like chicken wings. We'd cook a bunch of it with plans of sitting down and having lunch together. Right. And people would just finger food it and it would just disappear by the time we got to the table. It's funny. I've always heard that the meat isn't very good. It's always it's phenomenal. It's my, my uncle, my great uncle, he used to hunt uh, cougar a lot and he used to feed the meat to his dogs. Sure. Yeah. It's like, uh, they eat the bear and the cougar. We don't, we don't yeah. eat any of that. Yeah. And, and a lot of guys that that that's the old school way, yeah, right? Yeah. That's I, and I can't even tell you how many times I've, I've had guys tell me, "Oh, you can't eat snow geese," you know, mm -hmm. and they're fantastic. Oh, you can't. Oh, did you kill that caribou during the rut? Oh, you can't eat caribou during the rut. They taste like urine. They taste absolutely fantastic. Moose, deer, everything. It, I haven't run into something yet that has been unedible. Well, well the the thing of it is, I think, and I heard this somewhere not too long ago too, where. Uh, it was actually, I was watching a cooking show and, um, they were talking about, um, chard and kale and uh, mm -hmm. a few of the, uh, what do they call those winter something, right? But mm -hmm. the, that, the leafy green mm -hmm. and they were talking about how to prepare a better chard or kale or something like that. They were talking about the preparation of it and how you add diversified taste and, you, with just a few simple things. And I started thinking about it. I was like, you know, that's interesting because people always say this meat isn't very good. Mm -hmm. You'll hear that. Like that's, it's not very, it's not very good. Well, most, I would say 90% of those people probably haven't ever had the meat when they say it. So they're just perpetuating, perpetuating a, a, a myth. Yep. And then two, what was the preparation of said meal? what went into the actual preparation of it. And I think that's where I was combining those two things. Because if you take chard out of your garden and you take a big bite out of it, it's not very good. Terrible. Yeah, it's yeah. not very good. Yeah. You know, you blanch it, throw some olive oil on it and a little bit of, little bit of sea salt. It's pretty damn good. Suddenly you're a chef. Yeah. Yeah. yeah suddenly with little to zero effort yeah. and little to zero ingredients – You've taken something that doesn't taste very good and made it taste pretty damn good. Yeah. So <clears throat> with with uh with wild game or with you know all the different types of game, how you prepare it and then the generations before ours, how many of them actually enjoyed cooking too, because cooking was was seen as something that women did. Yep. You know, that would have been my family for sure. Mm -hmm. And um, that would have been my grandfather, you know, my great-grandfather. It, it's funny. They they would cook in hunting camp, yeah. but they wouldn't cook at the home. Yeah. Which is also a strange <laughs> Boils down scenario, to necessity. Right? Do but, you want to eat? But you know what? You know what I always ate uh, when I was a kid? The like any moose that was ever prepared for me. Now you know how it was prepared hmm. with uh, bread. So they with breadcrumbs. Oh yeah, and in, and then seared in like butter or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I've, so, I've eaten. I, that's funny because whenever we ate venison growing mm -hmm. up, um, my mother is a terrible cook. My father's a terrible hunter. So it wasn't often. Right. Uh, and it was never what he killed. 
it was always something that a friend of his gave him. Right. Uh, but we'd always bread it in flour, mm-hmm. flour, like salt and pepper and flour. And then my mother would, you know, burn it in grease and, and butter. And that's, that's actually, uh, oddly enough, is a, a portion of this, this ride that I'm describing in this film, the other side, a portion right. of that is eating all these different bear species that I'm hunting because everywhere I went, when I was younger, I would just fall for it. People say, oh, you know what, you kill, like I killed my first black bear. Right. And, um, and you know, I started taking the meat and the guy's like, oh, it's, it's, they've been eating rotten salmon and they have worms and you can't, they're right. not edible. I fell for it. And, uh, and it wasn't very fulfilling to have this notion, like I'd never considered myself a trophy hunter. I mean, this is back before I even really hunted. Mm-hmm. That, no, no, no. This is back before I hunted, not not really hunted. This is back before I hunted. And then killing my first black bear, and now I'm leaving with the skin and the skull and mm-hmm. this idea of donating the meat or trying to find a home for the meat, and it's this gray area in the conversation with the gentleman I'm hunting with. And so it was not very fulfilling at all Hmm. because the idea of eating the animal is very much a part of what I just believed by reading these stories. It just made sense to me that this is even with a grizzly bear, you ate it. That's, that's why we are hunting for this stuff and for the adventure, for the story. And so it's just, just like what you just mentioned that, you know, when I started eating these bear species, everyone would say oh it's not very good so finally i bit the bullet one time and you do it kind of secretly yeah take some meat and put it in a pan and prepare it and it was phenomenal phenomenal so and i thought you freaking guys so then a couple years ago i was hunting with a friend of mine and i said hey we're gonna eat these bears and 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 he thought (laughs) it was funny the whole time he's like you don't want to eat these bears, man. They're covered in worms. They have trichinosis. You know, they can, uh, he's, and he's kind of making this scrunchy face. You know, man, you know, he's selling it like he's doing a stupid, like spaghetti drainer on, on, you know, <laughs> buy this on TV, you know? And, and so I said, I'll tell you what, you save the worst. I knew he was hunting these two old bears and, and uh, he had ended up killing one. This thing was like 15, 16, 17 years old. Right. I said, save me some of the meat from it. Um, cause I'll, we'll prepare it for dinner. And he saved it for me. And it's funny cause when he pulled it out, he put it in the freezer. When he pulled it out, he pulled it out of a trash bag and it was yellow <laughs> and it was stinky and slimy. And, and, and he's like, I'm telling you, we're not going to eat it. We cooked that bear quarter for dinner and it went so damn fast. Your head would spin. And this is an animal that shouldn't taste. This thing has been eating rotten fish for the last three months. Right been eating things that have tapeworms in it has very likely has trichinosis in its flesh which you just have to cook to a certain temperature and it gets rid of the parasite right but all the odds were stacked against it it's the opposite of a big fat piece of texas beef right Right. this thing if you if i tell you about it you're not going to want to eat it but we cook it we prepare it well and we fed it to him a guy who's been guiding bears we fed it to him and all of a sudden I just talked to him this last spring. All of a sudden, none of his bears get left in the forest. <laughs> none of them. He takes them all. And I asked him, I said, so how do you, because his hunters don't take, most of his hunters are Americans. He's from right. Canada. And you can't take the bear meat back across the border. It's just right. not allowed. So you have to consume it there and then donate mm-hmm. it. And it was really funny because 
he keeps as much of it as he can, but he can't eat all of those bears that they're killing. So he has to donate it. And he called a um, he called a charity place in town, and he said, "By chance, do you guys take bear meat?" And the lady said, "Bear meat's our favorite." We'll take every bear that you guys get. We, bear meat's our absolute favorite. Everyone that comes here is basically like a soup kitchen. And they're like, everyone here, what? when they hear we're cooking bear, like they come a-running. And uh, so it was just a really rewarding experience for him. But had we not broken down that wall, right? even though it's just one individual, it, it's just, that, that's exactly what you're talking about. It's it's these wives' tales, this this... That that that's what this film is all about. To be honest with you, man, Qu- me asking myself questions, right. not necessarily coming up with answers, and then that's kind of how I'm going to continue to go through my life because I found the more questions that I ask myself, and the more I surround myself with people like you that I can ask questions to, that I feel more fulfilled and I'm happier. Whether that, whatever that means in my life. Doesn't mean I have a full bank account. Doesn't mean um, that I'm I'm the most successful hunter or even a very good hunter. But it does mean that I'm going through my life with purpose right. and and an understanding of of how I want to live. Well, it's it's funny because we live in a time, right? We live in a time, and not only that, but we're in a place where we have the ability to to do this. Right. We yeah. have the ability to ask questions. Yeah. I think that's an amazing thing. I think it's an amazing thing to to have because it's a it's a gift. We don't have to find the solution to where our next meal is coming from. You know, yeah. we don't we don't right. have to go to work in the sweat factory to feed, you know, the seven kids in the household because our parents died or yeah. whatever it is, right? Like that's we, right. We have, we have an incredible gift and the complexity of life is so interesting. And I think that's one of the things that, that I continue to struggle with because I, I don't have a hundred brains. I wish I did, wish I had a hundred brains and a hundred different people and I could fill one central brain with all those hundred brains of information yeah. and live, you know, a hundred different lives all in tandem. That would be incredible for me. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the biggest reasons why I made a transition out of my previous profession. It wasn't, uh, it, it, there was a lot of fear and a few of these other things involved and it was an emotional decision. But the, one of the big driving factors was I was no longer professionally stimulated or fulfilled. And the other thing was I knew that if I didn't transition into something, I would, I would, be of of lack and experience that I knew that I desperately wanted. Sure. Which was to do something completely different. And having a business, which is a whole other very complex act in itself, because you have hundreds, you know, at this point we have hundreds of employees. You have hundreds of different thoughts and ideas and correspondence, communication, and you've got psychology and leadership and finance and all these different things that are involved in it. Um it's very difficult to get bored doing mm-hmm. business, mm-hmm. but you do ask yourself the same questions. Is what I'm doing, is it right? Is it ethical? Is it, you know, uh, is it fulfilling? You know, what am I, what are, what are my goals? Why do I even have these goals? Yeah. Why? why yeah. Right. Yeah. And it makes you a little bit crazy 
is you're, you, especially a guy from from my perspective, I think a lot of people would go, you know exactly what you want. There's no, there's there's a there, there's zero, uh, um, I guess, lack of ability to to just find a goal and pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ask those questions all the time. And I think that those are good questions for me as an individual to ask not only of myself, my good father, uh, my good husband, and my good role model, not only to my children, but to the people who work. Like these are all things. And then they, I'm asking, and, and, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, <clears throat> just even with our, our shipping and how many boxes we send out sure. and what's in those boxes. And then the, the thing that's, you know, shipping the box from point A to point B. The conclusions that I had come to in a lot of different ways were, were like, well, we, we've optimized a lot of different things within the business and, you know, we employ a lot of different people. And once again, you're in this same Balance. type of, yeah. you're in the same type of, you know, it's like a courtroom situation all yeah. the time, right? Where you've yeah. got like two sides and they're they're at each other all the time going you know is what you're doing just an exercise in ego or are you really concerned about yes. x y and z yeah my my answer to that is it must not be about ego because i'm asking myself those questions yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah so if you do find the interference of ego, typically what my response is, I have to cut it out because it's a massive obstacle to being able to evolve as an individual. Like if you don't eviscerate it and leave it, leave that carcass on the ground, yeah. you can't evolve individually. And that thing has to be killed over and over and over and over again. It's easy to get lost. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. really easy to get lost. And that, that that idea of even that idea of evolution that you talk about, right? Really, what evolves uh, is a population. Mm. So you're changing yourself to hopefully change your the people around you and change your family and change your friends and or at least have them ask the same questions and. And, uh, but I think you're right. I think if you stop asking those questions or you're not the, you might not always be the first one to ask those questions. Mm. You might have to be, receive an outside influence from that and say, Hey man, do you, do you know what you're doing? But, um, I think that's really a, I think that's really a secret to, to trying to do things better, whether you are or whether you aren't. But I think, I do think that that's how I feel about, um, myself and it's not a uh it's not an exercise of it's not something like working out every monday morning it's not something that oh yeah i'm I'm asking myself all the time it's just these things come to me these things come when it's quiet Mm -hmm. or these things even come like when we're building a film and i'm sure it comes to you like when you when you look at shipping you know you don't sit down and say okay how can we minimize cardboard boxes but when you walk into the warehouse you then later on that night when everything's quiet or maybe it's immediate, you sit there and say, okay, look at all these cardboard boxes. What are we doing? Are we doing it well? Are we, what are we participating in? What are we contributing to? And, and I I like that. I like that. I like that critical thinking. I like, I always talk about, or I always think about, you know, everyone has their soapbox. Uh, Some guy just asked me in an interview if, if he thought, if I thought, all outdoor distinctions could get along 
meaning mountain bikers could get along with hunters, could get along with fishermen, could get along with hikers and mountain climbers and skiers. And I said, absolutely not. No way. And, and, and it is because we're so individual and, mm-hmm. and I've heard, and I, and it's funny because you think about some of the walls that have been built up between hunters and non-hunters. Um, and it's pretty easy to see. Hunters are very passionate about the things of the places that we have come from. This is what we've evolved from. We are all hunters and gatherers. This is, it's very easy to see where we stem from. Mm-hmm. But then non-hunters, it's very easy to see their argument because it's very difficult to kill an animal. Yeah. It's very, there's great sorrow in killing an animal. So it's very easy to see their side as well. And you, you sit there and say, okay, I can see why you don't want any animals to die. Mm-hmm. And, and I can see why I'm a hunter. I, th- these are easy, easy things to kind of wrap around your head around. But, um, you know, this idea of, of, um, critically thinking about yourself and, and about your environment and the things that you want to, um, as far as um, the better that you want to see, if you will, the change that you want to see, um, I think that's the that's the the trickiest aspect of 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 um, of fulfilling your ideas, if you will. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Your um, this 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 concept of of. Uh, it's it's easy it's easy to see some some principalities of it. It's difficult to see others and and just realizing where you kind of fall in in among it all of it, mm. if you will. So, well, I think I think that's the thing is when you ask your when you ask questions of of yourself, mm-hmm. and then you try to answer those questions. That's a very it, in today's world in our society. And, and I'll put this all together, hopefully in an articulate way. But people want yes or no, and even for themselves. Black and white. Black and white. They also don't want to take years to try to answer questions, and maybe even their life. And they'll, if they take the rest of their lives in pursuit of asking a question and might not actually getting to the answer, and being okay with that psychologically and or dying and being wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big jump for people, at least it was for me, which is I'm never going to know some of these or the answers to these questions. Yeah. And I don't have, and I won't have 365 days, you know, 16 hours a day to even discover what the answer is. But I can continue to develop my my information and continue to feed that so i can develop a, a more refined hypothesis to this indoor theory or come closer to some of these things and, and you're going to open your mind in the process yeah. right like if 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 mountain bikers are always hating hikers or who are always hating you know it's it always it always it, it baffles my mind a little bit some some of these walls that we see are easy to see like hunters non-hunters but you know, then, then you'll talk to a hiker and a mountain biker and they're like, Oh, I hate those guys on the bikes, you know? And you just think you don't like the guy on the bike. Like I, you know, but, but in asking yourself these questions, your things that you might not have answers to, you're opening your own mind. Right. And so I, I always think of this idea in the regards of being a hunter that you should, um, 
you should um we if hunting becomes like as our population grows if we don't have this catastrophic catastrophic event if the world continues to turn into kind of this idea of manhattan where everything's concrete um we essentially we should be asking ourselves questions hunters should be the first ones to stop hunting fishermen should be the first yeah. ones to stop fishing absolutely business ethics if you're really asking yourself critical questions you should try to be the first one to change or or start to like you said it's not black or white but you start to kind of flow in a certain direction and and then you start to have an idea of being a better person and having a better business having better flow and and um yeah well it's funny i was having this idea the other day i think this is a a, a continuation of the same thought coming from out of the the my my military life and into business and looking at conflict even in the future and looking at population increase and then the aspects and or the opportunities for conflicts in the future i truly think conflicts in the future will be dictated based on uh the resources like they already are oh like yes. we're talking about petroleum and a few of these other things but, but you're now, talking about water but i'm talking about water i'm talking about water i'm talking about fish so but it's not only over them it's protecting them because if the chinese and when i say this you know the chinese are billions of people at this point that they have uh, very detrimental fishing practices, uh, not only within their own oceans, but then international waters that move into other, uh, you know, other countries' uh, actual territory. Yeah. And not only that, when we look at other countries outside of America, their fishing practices and their their ability to continue to do non-sustainable commercialized fishing. And just looking at that, and I was talking to this lady. Uh, who runs a, a very, very successful nonprofit. Her husband's another guy who works in the cargo industry, so he sure. he optimizes cargo moving internationally. And we were talking about environmental policy, and I said, well, this is where I think this, where we are going to have a conflict is if there is an enlightened country with the ability to forecast not only ethics but sustainability will have to be. We will be ethically bound in order to force sustainability onto other countries mm -hmm. through military power. Mm -hmm. That, my friend, fucking blew her mind. She's like, you know, I'm saying that only in the sense of, do you think that would be possible? And I, I said, I, I don't know how it isn't possible. If the oceans die, we're fucked. Mm -hmm. Like, we're, it's game over, dude. Like, mm -hmm. we, we don't get another turn at this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah that's 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 the lifeline that's yeah. that's the and fresh water is falling at a remarkable rate and so yeah. you're, you're exactly right that 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 will be the military service it will that, be that will be the conflict yep yep and so that's that's <laughs> that's what we're trending towards and it's difficult you think about those ideas it's difficult to enjoy your tuesday yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's difficult to escape and and, and do things <laughs> that are so simple, like we're talking about. But that is, yeah. let's go horseback riding on Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. That is where we're trending towards. That, that's uh, that's literally yeah. where we're we are trending towards. Mm -hmm. Not only trending towards, but it, it it is going to happen on such a scale. 
in which it will it will continue to cause a divide within the country if people are not mm-hmm. educated to a certain level in order to understand that what we're doing internationally impacts the environment so much so mm-hmm. that we could put so much carbon and people are like, well, climate change doesn't exist. I'm like, Com- climate change has always existed. I will never disagree with that. It's always existed. But what rate and how fast is it climbing or dropping? Yeah. Like it hasn't climbed this fast since an asteroid hit or whatever yeah. we might put into this. If you're arguing climate change, you probably think the world is flat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and I think that that's where educating people and having accurate information, reliable, accurate information is so important for people not to choose a side and come up with their conclusion based on we, if we, if we put our heads in the sand or if we pull the sheets over our head, the boogeyman doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. If, if we take away our fish in the oceans, Mm -hmm. we're fucked. Mm -hmm. Like F U C T hard T at the end, Mm -hmm. dude, we're fucked. (laughs) Like, (laughs) so that's where I say there's this, the conservatives, myself being a, you know, a self-identified conservative, like, mm-hmm. you guys are not doing yourselves any justice by not identifying to one aspect of environmentalism because you want to agree uniformity with uni- uniformity across the line. You've got to at least buy into an aspect yeah. of this and come to some valid conclusion. Oh, by the way, if 98% of the scientific community is buying in on it and you're only going to trail along with that 2%, guys, it's you're going some, the wrong you're way. You're going in the wrong direction. Yeah. And I know, you know, they bring up, oh, everybody thought the world was flat for a long time and then, you know, okay, but dudes, that was several thousand years ago and, and uh, the, the, the writing is on the wall and the future doesn't look that it's not in a box. It's not. It's not fixated in no. into a party. That's for sure. No, and I and I don't see what the argument is for sustainable fishing and and or sustainable environmental practices as far as being able to continue to to to. Uh, I shouldn't say it's not not exploit, but we can continue to do some of the same things that we do. Uh, when it's, yeah, they're, they, are they are renewable. They are renewable. Yeah, we have to like. Yeah. We're not saying you you have to stop eating food. That's fucking impossible. But there are ways that we can continue to grow food in a sustainable way that we at least continue to have minerals within the food that we eat, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So we're talking about the the idea that being an environmentalist and uh, and a hunter, I think at some point for a lot of people, they feel like they have to be mutually exclusive, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that you've seen this, but it's, I think it's, it's mainly with one segment of the hunting population. I think so. Right? Mm-hmm. I think so. And I think that firearms obviously have something to do with that. Because if you're pro-2A, it's hard for somebody to say, well, I'm pro-2A and I'm also an environmentalist. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's like, it's almost like, how could you? You know, mm-hmm. does that mean that you're, you know, you want to support all the dam removals or what, whatever it might yeah, be? Yeah, and, and how can you, <clears throat> how can you, some people think, how can you be an environmentalist when you're removing wildlife mm-hmm. from an right. ecosystem? And people think um, in the, 
you know, the data would support this, I think, if human beings didn't live here. But people think that if we leave things alone, they're going to trend towards harmony, right. true balance. And right. there's just it, there's just not enough land. There's mm-hmm. too many people, too many. It just just like you pointed out, there's climate change and atmospheric conditions that are. I mean, look at even at um, currents and temperatures of the ocean. And I see this even on a small scale. Uh, my director of photography, William Altman, is um, when he's at, he lives in Maine. When he's at home, he's a spear fisherman. And he's telling me all the time. And I don't even know if he, I bet he's realizing it, but when he tells me these stories, it's not for the idea of the environment, but he'll sell, he'll say, and I'll make it up because I don't know where the lines lay, where they fall, but he'll say, oh, I shot a, holy cow, I shot a striper in just outside of my home in Maine in, you know, in June and stripers, you know, they've never been there. Like they're killing species, like they're killing Caribbean trigger fish and they're, and they're killing Caribbean species up by Maine, wow. you know, outliers. But people yeah. say, like when he tells me the story, it's just something that happened. But in my mind, I'm thinking, yep, the currents are changing, the the quote-unquote bait or the forage fish are changing their routes and, and yeah, and all that stuff stems from, you know, our impact. And so people tend to think that if you're a hunter, you're a one, it's a one-way street. You're just a taker. But really, we we might be the the biggest givers of all because if you, if you, and you know, the premise of the things that we're talking about is you have to go and participate. You you don't have to, we don't all have to hunt the same way. Um, not everything has to be hunted. Right. But we have to go and participate in some manner. And just going and looking, it's it's just not enough. I don't right. think it's enough. Anything you go and get close enough to, the closer you get to something, the more interesting it becomes. Right. So, and the only way you're going to get close enough is if you really care about it and you're engaging it on some level. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, the, <clears throat> excuse me, I think there is this common misconception that if we leave it alone, it will flourish. Um, and exactly what you just said, that they're going to live in harmony. It's, 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 I was out on the river with um, a really close friend of mine last year up in the uh, Salmon River Valley, just south of Lewiston. And uh, he was talking about the, uh, mule deer population in Idaho, mule deer, elk, whitetail. And he was telling me his dad, who was much older uh, when when he actually had him, but his dad didn't kill their first big classified, and I think it was a, an elk in that area until he was like 30-some years old. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because he wasn't hunting. It's because there wasn't any population there. Mm-hmm. So, and he, he had talked about how when he grew up that he could see the population start to move in and increase. Sure. And a lot of this had to do with the fact that they had removed a, a big percentage of the predator population. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, and I'm not exactly familiar, but he had a couple other theories, but he's like, at that point, and even when we look, when he looked at, and the guy is an incredible researcher. So he started reading 
journals from mountain men and the Lewis and Clark journals and a few of these other uh, guys that were, 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 were great at journaling their mm-hmm. experiences in the backcountry in, in Idaho during that time, told me that Lewis and Clark weren't eating elk through there because there wasn't any elk to eat. They were eating fish mm-hmm. because that's what they had to eat, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until they got to the coast of Oregon where they started eating elk hmm. meat. Yeah. And they had, I think they had the option to eat their horses on the Lolo Pass, but it's been a while since I've read Undaunted yeah. Courage. Yeah. I can't remember. Well, and a lot of that stuff also, <clears throat> and I don't know about the populations then and exactly what was going on, but the things that we know of now, the things that we're experiencing now, we have perpetuated this change through logging right. and through creating housing developments and things like that. And some of our species, the white-tailed deer, coyote, they thrive where we impact right. um, wildlands. They thrive. And even with elk, you know, um, obviously they're, they've they've lived for thousands of years in these big forests. But when we when now when loggers go in and they cut a big portion of the forest down, whether it be selective cut or clear cutting, and all that secondary growth comes up, that is all really good food and cover and right. and habitat for everything from black bears to elk to white-tailed deer to mule deer. So I mean, the impact that we have is has been fantastic, but we can. We can minimize our continued impact and we can, like we are discussing before, it being a renewable resource, we can certainly mitigate how we approach things in the future and make the best possible decisions. I think our biggest problem that we run into is um, the closed-mindedness. I think that's probably our biggest detriment is whether you live in the city or the country or what political belief you have or, or whether you're for... Um, public lands or privatization of lands, I, I, I think we have to remain open-minded. And there are a couple of steadfast ideas that we have to hold on to, one, you know, one of them keeping public lands public. Um, and I think the idea of that is not necessarily that the U.S. government's better at regulating land than somebody that owns a bunch of private land, but it's that, it's that notion of um, – like in, in Ray Dalio's book, that idea of metocracy, right? It's yep. the government is representing a whole portion of people that are managing these lands for the people, whereas if it was privatized, that's going to fall under just a few minds, if mm-hmm. not just one mind. And, and it's difficult for any one person not to be selfish and finally sell that stuff off or sell off the mineral rights, the animal rights, access rights, things like that. So I think are you know remaining open minded and not building up walls between us as people is is probably our greatest attribute and and um yeah I think that's where we have to to really hang our hats for sure yeah and I think that's may the greatest idea win right that, yeah that yeah and that's the that's the thing that I think I continue to question and look at where. I'm I'm very much in the frame of mind where I don't want to necessarily weigh in on a conversation if I haven't read at least a a few different varying opinions mm-hmm. from subject matter experts that you can rely on the information to a certain degree. So I think if anything with the manipulation of information via social media that's 
kind of taught us that we, we really do have to do reference checks. We have to take a look at where the information is coming from, who's putting the information out, what type of research went into the information. What's your subset? Yeah. Did it happen once? Right. Or or has it happened a number of times? And a lot of people say, well, you know, I talked to the biologists and biologists are awesome, but you being present in the wilderness can tell the biologists a thing or two, right? Through your observations and and really what would be a great representation is if every time you floated the river, um, if they said, hey, you know, how many trout did you catch? What species of trout did you catch? Where did you catch them? Did you see any elk while you were fishing? Did you see any black bears? What? And through these observations, you can really start to, you know, build up a scale. And 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 people, like you, you mentioned it before, the uh, Lewis and Clark, like they journaled really well. Imagine if people still did. Yeah. We seem to go through life in today is now and that's it like we, when we when I, when I go hunting or we go hunting we seem to whatever caribou we saw or whatever deer we saw that just seems to be what happened today but really if you started to kind of take a measure of what you were seeing and what was going on with the temperature and the wind and and what other kinds of events were going on we, you'd be doing a service for the future because then it'd, it'd be given even if you're not a biologist you're starting to give data you're starting to collect data that's going to be you know, can be usable and, and um, your observations are important, but it, it just doesn't seem like people do that stuff anymore. Back then, everything was a discovery and everything was a new land and, and every, you know, everything was, everything was brand new and, and there were no walls. And so there, it was exciting to, to journal, but um, I think it's just as important today and whether it be for yourself or, or uh, to contribute to science or to contribute to, management but do you keep a journal i do do you yeah i mean i do i do and and even um like like this last hunt that i did in tiburon every day i might just jot down little things it might even be that you know i might tell myself a story in the journal about a scorpion that i saw or a snake that i saw or a lot of times i'll scribble down things uh, which is funny and odd and weird, but I'll scribble down questions that I have for myself later on because I don't have Google, mm-hmm. so I don't have yeah. yeah. So, and and I generally am not traveling with a book, but I'll write questions on like, what is this cactus species? Why this taller cactus species? And I might draw a picture of it in my journal and say, okay, the bottom, the bottom portion of it was all rotted out, and it looked like something had been attacking it. What could that possibly be? And I'll just start to ask myself questions and. And then sometimes also, um, I actually did this on this trip, and I do this generally wherever I go, but we'll run into different species, and I'll ask the guides, and I'll ask the native people questions about the wildlife to see what they know. Mm -hmm. And it's really funny, the wives' tales that you get and the different... So on, on Tiburon, there are tarantulas everywhere. And so, and I kind of knew what it was, but looking at the body of the tarantula... Um, looking at their abdomen, they have these two little prongs that come off the the backside of their abdomen. Right. And I just assumed, because I know a little bit about arachnids, but I just assumed that those were its silk spinners, but I really didn't know, I didn't have an idea of 
tarantulas ever using silk because they live in little holes. Right. So it's not even like a tunnel spider that creates or a funnel web spider mm-hmm. or whatever that creates a trap. Yeah. Like these guys literally just live in little burrows. Yeah. And so I've never seen a tarantula. So I asked the guys, I asked some of the uh, Mexican guides, um, and it had to be translated because I didn't speak English, but I asked them, I said, what are these things? And they're like, oh, those are teeth. Those are teeth where they sting them. But mm. I looked it up when I got home and no, they're silk spinners, but they look like fangs coming out of the abdomen. So that was these guys' impression that these were like, if you're going to pick a tarantula up, like this thing's going to wrap its abdomen around and sting you. And so I'll ask myself questions like that. And then fantastic things that happen. And sometimes even through storytelling, I'll write down, I'll describe a sunset or describe something that happened that day. And um, I also have this wherewithal, this perspective of, I think about the animal that I might kill and so I start to think about their, maybe their clock is coming to an end or maybe my clock is coming to an end, right? Maybe I'm going to fall off a cliff and I don't know that yet. Maybe I'm going to die tomorrow morning in an airplane crash and I don't right. know that yet. So I think about sometimes that stuff. But so this, when I got to the island this last time, um, the gentleman that I were hunting with, they were they had gotten to the island before me and they were just hiking around and scout, scouting some areas out and the sheep move around quite a bit on the island so they want to get an idea of what the sheep are doing because they have areas that and this is kind of interesting I'd never really experienced this in my life but they have areas that are unbelievable for the sheep yet sometimes they go in there and the sheep aren't there and so I asked them in the beginning why that was and they couldn't really answer it but I realized as we went into it the island actually gets quite a bit of rain in over the summertime and into August or into September. And so I think the areas of the island that get the most rain, the sheep kind of migrate over there because the, the vegetation is better. And so I think that's what was going on. Um, but they had told me before, like there, there's one place that they called the big flat top plateau. And they said, there's amazing sheep there. It usually holds really big old rams, but they had went there the last two or three years and there's no sheep, zero. But they checked it out this year, and and there were sheep there. And then they had found this ram, and they just watched him from afar because the, the sheep there are so sensitive to intrusion, any human intrusion at all, and they are gone, and you're not going to find them again. Like the, right. Even though it's an island, it's 150,000 hectares, so it's massive. And there's caves and draws and coolies, and uh, the vegetation and cactus are insane. So finding them is very, very difficult. So anyway, they found this ram and they called him El Chippo because he had a massive, from fighting, he was missing a massive portion of his horn. And um, and so when I got into camp, they said, hey, we found this ram, but we want to look at some other areas with you. And and these guys just, they have such a respect for the animals. They're not just, even if they found a big ram, they're just not going to lead you to them and do that. Like we, we want to look about, we want to have a, a sincere hunt. And so we legitimately hiked um, from one coast to another and picking our way through, which was challenging because we had to carry, there's no water on the island. Right. So we had to carry every ounce of water that we drank, which is way more difficult than you think. And not difficult, it's way more intensive than you think to watch your water supply dwindle. And then you start to, and you're hiking in 90 degree weather every day. Right. So you're controlling your intake, and and um, and so as as we're kind of moving across this this, um, you know, from coast to coast, 
they they had seen this ram before, but they weren't sure how old he was. And so that really drives these guys for everything they do. Um, they're not they're not really looking at uh, the size of the animal, although I think some of their clients probably are. Some of these guys that are coming and hunting, they have ideas of, of what em, embodies what they're looking for in a ram, like what it should look like and what it should have for um, size. But for me, I was just looking for, I just wanted an, an old bugger and, you know, deer and elk and moose shed their antlers every year, right? It's fastest growing substance, biological substance known to man, but sheep have horns, which is like our fingernail material. Right. And so each year from when they're a lamb, each year they get a new ring like a tree and they, and they grow out into their horns. And so I just wanted, it's really intriguing to, to kill a, to hunt and kill a ram, potentially kill a ram that is, trending towards the end of his life. And, um, so they weren't sure this big ram that had the chip out of it. He had to look, he had to look in the behavior of an older ram. And that's the, that's the part of the biology that I love, but they didn't know how old he was until we got closer. And so we basically hunted from one coast to the other, looking for any, anything new or interesting or unique. And, and, um, and, uh, and then we just, made our way to, to this ram and, and got closer to him and watched him for several days. And, um, it was cool. I really enjoyed it. That the Mexican guys that I hunted with are, if they're not the best guys I've ever hunted with, they're right in line. I mean, just fantastically talented and, um, definitely know their craft, definitely know the Island, definitely know the animals. And it was pretty remarkable. How many days were you there? 14. 14. Did you you video the entire thing? Mm -hmm. The whole thing, the whole thing is filmed. And the whole premise of the film was, um, the guy that runs the place, his name is, uh, Luis. And he, uh, he, his, his biggest influence when he was growing up with his dad and an uncle and, and these guys had, they just loved hunting, lived for hunting and they traveled all over the world, uh, to hunt. And, and Luis's dad, Mr. Romero, he, uh, passed away and then now just this wasn't um this wasn't in in the idea of the hunt but his uncle just passed away shortly before I got there but his dad had hunted all over the world with this 1950s Belgium made Browning 270 Winchester and so um, when we started talking about doing a film there really it's not that we are necessarily chasing a story but Luis had seen our work before and he really wanted to see this island that was so near and dear to him, the wildlife that was so near and dear to him. He just wanted to see it captured in, in photograph and film so he could share it with his family and friends, and which I thought was kind of cool because that's kind of how I got started in doing what I'm doing now. Um, and he asked if I would uh, be so gracious as to hunt with his, his dad's rifle. Um, and obviously being an archer most of the time, um, I been completely fine using a rifle, but it, you know, it, he, he, he's made it clear right off the bat. He's like, Hey, I want you to come. I want you to film here, but you can't bow hunt. You got to use my dad's gun or I'd really like you to use my dad's gun. So that kind of ended up becoming the story. And, and as, um, as he shared stories of his dad with us, it was just really cool. Cause he has a ton of old photos. He has a ton of old footage, eight millimeter footage of his dad hunting around the world. And his dad fell in love with Africa. So really that kind of, um, it was kind of the 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 bond, the friendship, the the um, story shared while we were hunting this ram. So we're we're trending towards this older ram the whole time. But 
telling stories at each campfire, if you will, not real campfire, but you see what I'm saying, sitting around at night underneath the stars, becoming better and better friends and sharing stories of things that we've experienced around the world, all while carrying his father's rifle and all while looking for this old ram. And, and, um, it was cool. It was a really cool experience. Yeah. So how long, when, when you, when you put together a project like this from tip to toe, how long does that process take you as far as the planning, logistics, and then post, how long are you going to be in post on that? Um, I mean, let's say that that, let's say that that trip becomes, let's say that that single trip becomes a film. Mm -hmm. So it's a year in planning easily of just logistics and when we're arriving, when we're leaving, what we're trying to accomplish when we're there. And then coming up with an idea of telling the story while we're there. Right. And sometimes, so then we would go, we went there and filmed for two weeks. And then now we'll go back probably in April and film again, just because I want to sit down much like we are right now. And I want to talk to him at greater length about his dad. Right. And about the rifle. And I want to look at more photos and watch more film and just kind of, I just want him to take his sweet time telling me about his dad. I want to know everything about him and, and, uh, and I want to record it in better equipment than we had on the island. So that's, that's where you start to walk in. That's where you start to, where the rubber meets the road, the work starts to meet the experience and the adventure. And cause one has to, they have to be a, a blend of both so we can come out with a project. And, um, so then, then we'll come up with a scope of work of what we're going to what we're going to try to accomplish each day on the island, and then the scope of work that we're going to get after we leave the island, and then it's still going to take. I mean, roughly, I'm not going to say a year, but it's going to take several months in the studio, scoring the music, coming up with the story, um, which sometimes is a, you know, sometimes stories are very easy. Sometimes there's a great story that lands right in front of you, falls right in front of your face. Like for instance, if if I'm in a if I'm ever in an airplane crash and the story develops into you know it goes from being a, a elk hunt to now an airplane crash in a wilderness survival, and we just happen to, like our camera gear is still working, we happen to film this wilderness survival, and end up getting this story, or you know some some stories are so sensational they just fall right into your lap, or, right. they, or they lay out in front of you, and then others. You know, we'll we'll film all the aspects of this story with his dad and his dad's gun, and it'll take us some time to to put together how the story lays out. Um, and and this one might be a tiny bit more linear because we know about his dad, we know about the gun, and then we know how the sheep hunt went, and we're we're able to celebrate all those things through imagery, through music, and through storytelling. So, but it it'll take a year to put together. It'll take hundreds of hours of of editing and and uh, scoring the music and stuff to put it together. And, in contrast, like the film that we have right, right now, the other side, that's, I mean, that's six years of filming. Right. And I wish, I'd love to sit here and tell you that that was the plan. I'd love to sit here and tell you that it wasn't hindsight, but that this project was 100% hindsight. I kept filming these bear hunts. We kept filming these bear hunts with the idea of building these stories individually, if you will, but none of it felt enough to me. And, and, and then as I was hunting these bears, I was self-reflecting and asking myself difficult questions, not, not with the idea of building a film, but just out of being there and watching the bears and, 
and trying to challenge my ideas of being a hunter and do I even want to be a hunter? Do I even want to be a bear hunter? Do I even want to be here right now for this particular activity? And so then I realized that's the story here. The story is my own contention about being a bear hunter or contention about how some hunt bears or how we should hunt bears or how I'm hunting bears. And and so, you know, that was six years in filming and has been, we started editing the film last December and we just came out with it. Um, last week was our premiere. So it took us, and I can't even tell you how many iterations of it we thought were done. Right. You know, like Kyle would deliver me a first kind of skeleton of the film of pieces of it, you know, and I'd watch it. And I'm like, hmm. And he's like, oh, I think it's really good, you know, and I'd watch it and then I'd have questions and he's like, oh yeah, okay. And so then, you know, he'd say, well, I don't want to do this and this. And so it's just kind of this collaboration, right? And I can't even tell you how many times we thought it was done. And then pieces of music evolve and shot sequences evolve and the ideas evolve and story evolves and the writing evolves. And yeah, so it's it's a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. <clears throat> so when you're getting ready to launch you know, your, your premiere and your sequence, what does that look like? Because, you know, we were, we as a company were in Colorado last week. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Last Monday, last Monday, last Monday. Okay. Yeah. What did that look like? What, what, what was the, uh, what was the scene set the scene for, for that? Uh, it was incredible. I mean, uh, we had, we have launched films in other um, film festivals and been part of festivals and things like that. This is the first time we had ours as a standalone. Right. And so it was, dude, it was, it was wicked. It, I was so proud and so proud of our partners like Black Rifle and, and, um, it's, so the theater, it was in, uh, a theater called the Lyric, small kind of eclectic type theater, really good artwork in there. But, you know, the artwork might be, you know, a human skeleton with a, with a bird skull on top of it. And then, you know, really crazy paintings of right. Medusa or something, something you'd see like inner city, if you will, or, right. um, but you could tell the people there celebrated art. They took film seriously and, um, and, and they, you could tell that they kind of love their jobs, but, um, so they had a bar, they have a bar in the theater, serve good food in the theater and, and uh, so Black Rifle came in, set up a booth, had all your guys' new products, your new backcountry coffee was mm -hmm. very, very popular there. Um, Hanwag is uh, the boot company that I wear. They and and you Hanwag? Know, Hanwag. You know those guys? No. Uh-uh. Oh, man. They they make the most incredible boots. Yeah. So th this is – and by the way, this is not like a, a – a, a, surreptitious plug. I, no, no, I no. Don't, I don't know about the company. No, so no, no. You have and, to tell me. And and any company that I work with, it you know from our work mm. with you, yeah. I, we're never chasing dollars. Mm. We're never like we are those Hanwags right there on the floor. Yeah. Oh, will you throw me one? Not only, not only are these Hanwags, but this is their original boot from eighteen something. That's a remake of basically their original boot. So. They, you've heard of Loa? Yeah, of course. Okay, so yeah. Loa is Lawrence Wagner. Hanwag is Hans Wagner. What? So Hans, <laughs> so when, when I started wearing, when I started wearing Hanwags, the guy that I was talking to, he said, hey, what boot, what boot do you like the best? And I said, the best boot I've ever worn is a Loa Mountain GTX or something like right. that. Right, yeah. yeah. 
So he said, um, well, our boots are going to fit you perfectly then. And, and I said, well, you know, how do you, how do you know that? And, um, and he said, well, because Hans Wagner taught his brother Lawrence how to make boots. And then Lawrence took his company and basically wanted to branch off and do his own thing. And so then they separated, but their boots fit similarly. And so, um, these guys reached out to me through a friend of mine who was working at the company and he just said, Hey, have you ever tried our boots? And I said, no, he's like, okay, let me send you a pair, try them out. I put them on. And just by, just by proxy, I had to hike like 15 miles on them the first day that I put them on. Um, and they were incredible, incredible, incredible boot, incredible structure, great soles. Um, and they just fit my foot absolutely perfectly. And so, um, that's how most of my relationships have kind of got started. So, well, it's, and it's funny cause you just threw me one and it looks like a, a, a very handcrafted yeah. boot. It really, it really does. They're, they're, they're does not big, look like a big factory boot. No, 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 no. Yeah. They're, they're still made, um, basically handmade. Their, their stitching is what they're known for. Their, yeah. their stitching is, uh, it's incredible. The boots are very, very tough. I've beat, I beat the hell out of them. I wear one called this, I think it's called the Cirrus, Sirius GTX or something like that is the one that I wear the most. Um, now, do they have a big presence in the U.S.? No, almost no presence in the U.S. I was going to say, because yeah. I'm, I'm a relatively intelligent purchaser when it comes to yeah. performance footwear. Yeah, so I've there it is. You it. see that blue one? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one. You, can, you can't get the blue one. I actually just got I'm very excited about. The blue you can't get in the United States, mm-hmm. um, but they just sent me a pair. But the, if you click on the gray ones, the Cirrus 2 GTX, that's the boot that I wear sheep got hunting. It. It's very, very good boot. Um, so those guys set up a booth right next to you guys. Right. And it was really cool because um, when I talked to them afterwards, I was like, hey, did you guys have some good conversations? And uh, the guy that I speak with there, his name's Cody Winward. And he's like, oh, it was incredible. He's like, no one knows about our boots. So it was really incredible. People are in there touching, feeling. Same yeah. with same with Black Rifle. People are in there wanting to talk about your new backcountry coffee because that is something that is pretty pretty common in the world that we live in is people wanting to have a cup of coffee when they're back there. Mm-hmm. And um, it, 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 it gives you, uh, when you're having coffee out there, it gives you, I mean, you know this, right? For I mean, not that not that the thing, the things that we do are not what you did in the military. Very different, but there is similarities in the cold, the wet, the bugs, the sock sometimes. And so, having a warm cup of coffee, you can trick yourself that you're somewhere else for a couple of minutes. And so that that's the only relationship between those two. I don't want to confuse that at all. But I, there there are a lot of uh, similarities because it you know it's a mode of transportation at the end of the day right so mm-hmm. it's like putting one foot in front of the other yeah in terrain and hunting something or being hunted that it is the way it is yeah and i think that's one thing with the the subculture that i come that i come from performance gear is a is a big deal like it's it's a big deal and i am it i is. am a certifiable gearhead yep and i know that like yep. and it's not I'm not a guy that's, you know, attracted to brands based on the way the branding position is, which mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, I try to dive, dive a lot, a lot deeper into them. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because <clears throat> my company is known for, you know, it's, it's brand, right? It's, it's got this social media presence. 
And a lot of people are so surprised because they're like, wow, it's, it's a very, very good or a high quality product. Yeah. The instant coffee that we developed for, like, I very much developed that for the backcountry. It took me over a year. Yeah. It took me hundreds of cups of coffee. It took me uh, back and forth, and I would taste one and I would sit on it for a week. And I taste it again. I'm like, it's not good enough. It's just not, it's, it's yeah. not good enough. Yeah. Send it back, do it again, send it back, do it again. It took me a year. Yeah. Just profiling it. Yeah. And guys have said, well, it doesn't like, because they'll have it. Yeah. And they'll say, well, it's an instant coffee. I don't expect much out of it. For me, I do expect a lot out of it. Yeah. It's an instant coffee. It's 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 my product. It's my it's and it's my your reputation. jam, right? Yeah, so yeah. So and the, and exactly what you're talking about. That was the that was the the DNA of the room, right? right? That was the DNA that was in the theater, and that's that's been the DNA of of any partner that we work mm -hmm. with. And that's and you know, so yeah, you got you guys there, and you got Hanwag there, and you got. Um, the reason we were there in Fort Collins was for Otterbox. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Otterbox was having, basically they had a lot of their executives and people in from mm -hmm. around the world that were there to do some meetings and celebrations for Christmas. Right. So that's why we threw it in Fort Collins. But uh, yeah, the, the energy was rad. It was, re it was really amazing. The film, um, it was great to see it on the big screen hear it on the big screen, right. hear the music. And and um, and then at the end, we did raffles and we gave away a bunch of stuff, including coffee that you guys gave us. Including and, an Otterbox cooler that yeah. wasn't meant to necessarily be <laughs> yeah, given yeah. away. We gave away one of the employees' own personal cooler because we just got in the giving. <laughs> got it. We just pulled another ticket and he's like, hey, well, that's my personal cooler. We, yeah, it's it cool. It, we've talked a lot about gear. You and I, we've mm -hmm. talked a lot about gear. Yep. And... We talked a lot about sponsorships. Yep, how you actually work with your, and really, I I don't know if I would necessarily call them sponsorships no. necessarily. They're partners. My my opinion is not for sale. Right, and, and I can tell you, I've walked away from re really good companies right. with really good brands and really good products. They don't need endorsement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not seeing ads in magazines for Ferrari. People know what a Ferrari is, but really good companies with really good products and really good brands do want to work with a certain group of people to do product testing, product development, to get some assets for photography, for film. And I know I, I really, I don't need to receive letters. I know I'm talking about a gray area here, but, right. but I get, I get endorsements that come across my desk every day. Every single day, people are, oh, yeah, so, oh, we love your work. I'm, I mean, maybe maybe three or four times a day. Yeah. Oh, we love your presence on Instagram. We'd like to pay you this much per post. It's not for sale. That That is not for sale. And like when, when I first started talking to Hanwag, um, so I started wearing, have you ever heard of the company Fjall Raven? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so Fjall Raven is the parent company to Hanwag. Oh, okay. And so the son of the originator of Fjall Raven has been building a parent company called Phoenix and they own Hanwag. Absolutely. I know exactly. Brunton, Primus. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. that's where they fall under. And so a buddy of mine that I used to work with at another company, he left, 
he was with um, Zeal Optics. Right. He out of Colorado. He left Zeal and went to uh, went to Fjall Raven. Went to Phoenix. So he called me up. He's like, "Man, have you ever worn Fjall Raven clothing?" I said, "Of course, I have. Tons of it." And I, I said, "I love it." And he's he's like, "Well, I'm going to send you some pieces." And then he said, "Have you ever worn Hanwag boots?" And I said, "No." And then he said, "What's your favorite boot right now?" And I said, "My Loas." And he's like, "Oh." Let me send you these Cirrus GTX twos. He's like, they're like, they're gonna fit you identically to a Loa. And then he told me the story about mm-hmm. Lawrence Wagner and Hanwag and Hans Wagner. And he said, so they're gonna fit you identically. It's just that they're built much better. Right. Um, they're crafted much better, the stitching. And so I thought, oh, that sounds fantastic. And so that's how that's kind of how my relationships develop, you know. And they sent me boots and I wore the boots and then you know, and it wasn't, hey, we'll pay you, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year to wear our boots. They come to me and say, you know, try our boots out, and I try them out, and I say, oh, I love them. They said, what would you change about them? You know, and I might, I might say nothing, or I might say, yeah, I would change this or this or this. Just like after I start using your coffee this next year, you know, you might come to me, you might not, because you know a lot more about it than I do. But you might come to me and say, how'd you like the coffee? Is there anything right. that you would change? Is there it, would you change the packaging? Would you? How did you carry it? How did you use it? How you know all of these things that I might have more engagement with than you because you might be too busy to be doing it in the backcountry or whatever. And so that's how these engagements will start. And then they'll come to me and say, "Hey, um, we need a new cover photo for our next catalog." Um, can you send us over some examples of your work? So I send them over and then they say, okay, so how much does this photo cost? Well, it costs X. And they go, ooh, oh, okay, holy cow, that kind of stings a little bit. So basically what it boils down to is we try to come to the table and find a number that works for either, uh, you know, a macro buy-in for them to get some um, presence in the work sincere presence, authentic presence, and then use some of the stuff commercially. Cause I can't, right. I can't pay for myself to go to Alaska, pay for the entire team to go to right. Alaska, to camera gear, everything. It's, a come, trip like that would be. Yeah. And then come <laughs> back and give an image to Black Rifle Coffee and be like, yeah, here's a picture for the cover of your catalog for free. It's right. on me guys. Yeah. Hey, right. no, that's, 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 there's a business side of this. However, you know, a lesser boot company, I'm not going to name any, although I've been offered by several, but a lesser boot company can't, you know, they'll come to me and say, hey, we'll pay you $100,000 a year to use our boots. We're really trying to, you know, we went down the Walmart route for a little while and we're trying to get, we're trying to get back to some serious market share here. We want the serious guys to know that we're, we dove into research and development. So we want, you know, the answer is really no. I mean, there might be a certain fit there, but more often than not, 95% of the time, the answer is no. And I have some peers or some, I don't know if they're peers, but people that apparently do similar or same things that I do. And they just, I mean, it's for sale. I mean, it is all for sale. They will tell you, and I know a contingent of people. I mean, I could, I could burn so many bridges right now, and I could tell you... This person uh, tells you every single day on Outdoor Channel that they use this product, yet I've been to their house and they only use that product when, as their last outer layer or they'll right. only use it 
only use the jacket. They'll only allow themselves to be filmed from the waist up. Or they say they use this trail camera where literally their entire, you know, they use this camera over here for everything. It's just when they're filming, they use this camera because this camera is so bad. So literally people are paying to play. Their opinions are for sale. And I mean, more power to them. Their bank accounts are 10 times bigger than my bank account. But I, to me, I want to do really good work. I want to work with really amazing people. I want it. I want my family and friends to be proud of the work that we're producing. And I want it to live on after I die. Right. And those are things that are important to me. And, and working with special companies is a rarity, but that's a long, long form way to tell you why we're in Fort Collins, why we're working with Otterbox, with Black Rifle Coffee, with Hanwag Boots and Fjall Raven and, well, that, that makes sense. And I I think a lot of people, they wonder about that. They do. Yeah. And working within the influencer space, because there are a lot of influencers that approach Black Rifle. And, oh, I bet. Yeah. And Oh, I bet. <laughs> uh, you, you have to take them. And now we're, we're, we're even more selective because I think in the beginning – uh, of Black Rifle, we were less selective, not because we wanted more market share. We just felt we were. Um, I was like, "Wow, this this is very this, oh, yeah. this, this is what you want to work with my company." You know, you're you're it's an flattering. influencer. It's flattering. It's yeah. yeah. Hey, that sounds great. And what happens is you 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 develop a relationship and those relationships don't necessarily work out not because an influencer is is a bad influencer or they're a bad person or it just could be for whatever reason you just don't really want to continue yeah. the relationship yeah and there are a lot of influencers I, I would call you you are an influencer but you're a different type of influencer from a lot of different ways uh number one the authenticity i think that that is translated through the the work that you put out because you care about what you're putting out uh to the point of which it's it's so it 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 is the art of storytelling through video Mm -hmm. and i would definitely classify you as a as a as a different type of artist storyteller uh for sure and i appreciate that that uh that means a lot no it means a lot and there, there just is not a lot of true storytellers left. There are people that develop content to mm-hmm. include. We develop content every every day, every week. We really try to tell stories for people too. So we've developed a whole series of different forms of content where it gets deeper into the company, it gets deeper into the people that we work with in the yeah. company because we want people to understand who we are and that's why we labeled it. Well, evidently, because we stole it from, from you. <laughs> um, <laughs> which was completely unintentionally and I'm still a little bit embarrassed of. Uh, but we do want to dive deeper into the storytelling, the content and the the true art of storytelling. Yeah, that's Because important. if you're just hawking a product and this happens in our industry all the time to where they don't care about the product Mm -hmm. 
they care about this, the, the gross revenue number and whether or not they're increasing that. That's a very short-sighted way to look at business. And I think the relationship that you develop with people that you work with, they both have to have the same vision for not only themselves, but for the brand. Is this going to be a relationship that I want to cultivate yeah. and work for several years with no real end in sight? You yeah. Know? It's like, how do we do that? Yeah. Um, and there just is not a lot of people that, and we meet them. I, I see it. I see it when I, when I've worked around a lot of different influencers, well, they'll put something on, they'll zip it up. They'll take mm -hmm. some content and then they'll take it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they'll take it off. Yeah. And they'll, you know, go about their day. We don't work with any of those guys, so yeah. it doesn't really bother me. But I've yeah. definitely seen it, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. And or they'll say that, oh, I these guys sponsor me, but I don't really use their product. I've yeah. heard that. I've heard that a lot. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah and I've seen. I was just talking to a guy last week. I would, I, I would love. It's not the world we live in, but I would love to sit here and really talk about oh, yeah. i'd love to just flesh it <laughs> no. all out because it just makes yeah. me drives me mad but i have guys that you know reach out to me and they say hey i am freezing hunting right and i am wearing this uh i'm wearing the best of the best i'm right. wearing this jacket these pants this matching set right and uh you know and i tell them like you're, you're not even you, the stuff you're wearing is not even in the top 10 not even the top 10. And they said, what? Are you kidding me? And then I list, they said, well, what companies are you wearing? And I list them off and they said, I've never even heard of any of those right. companies. And and um, and I try to get them to, not try to get them, but, um, you know, just try to influence them to say, hey, if you don't have a lot of money, you can do amazing things with, you know, you can get certain wools to stay warm. You can get certain, you can get pieces that aren't camouflaged. You can get, purple and pink and yellow and stuff right off of the clearance rack. And especially God willing, if you're triple XL or extra small, like there's a lot of stuff you, available. You can, yeah. You can find some clothing for, Oh good man. Yeah. yeah. And so like I, you know, I try to tell these guys, like, I'm not just trying to sell you a, a set of wares for you to go and buy and, and perpetuate these companies that I work with. No, it's, you can buy from X, Y, and Z. And it's just important. The authenticity for me is, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot these days, mm. but it's really important to me and both in working with companies like you guys and then also in conveying things in in the film. Like I was talking to Dave earlier about um, you know, our, our previous podcast where I talk about some of the issues that I have had in my family, some of the major struggles that I have. And it's it's embarrassing for me to admit this to a guy like you but some of the major struggles that I've had with my self-confidence every single day and things that I've struggled with myself, both in business and being in front of the camera and writing and everything in life. And, and so, but you realize that not everyone has it figured out. And some people have a lot more money than others, or some people are a lot more fit than others, or some people appear that, that their lives are easy or, um, and, and, you know, like you might confuse if if you know somebody who's a, a trust fund baby and their, you know, mom or dad has millions or billions and they're just, their bank account is just in, inherently full. You might say, oh, that guy's got 
his life is so easy, but his life is probably also quite a bit miserable and he probably has nothing to hang his hat on. He's probably not done anything ever for himself and probably looks in the mirror every day and questions everything. But, um, so the, for me, the authenticity, the storytelling, not, not just to tell a story to sell you a film to make money, but really the storytelling, tell you what's going on in my mind, tell you what happened here and look for answers or, or, um, convey the emotions and things that were going on and, and, um, and then, and then having the, having the ability to sit down and speak with you and, and, and represent Black Rifle and, and to call you guys sincere friends and to work together and to collaborate and come up with ideas. And, you know, that's, for me, that's the, that's a major gift and, and nothing is ever for sale from us ever. It's all a collaboration always. Yeah, and we knew that straight away because Rich, I think, introduced us, Richard Ryan, and the first conversation we had wasn't about some type of business relationship. Mm -mm. It was like, hey, I just want you to talk to you on the podcast. And we had known each other for over a year, like well into a year. And that respect especially from my from my end was looking at the films that you made looking at the stories that you told uh they that was different it was not just a a um a factory output of okay we're we're leaving at the beginning of the story we're killing at the end (laughs) of the story and then i'm going to create eight eight episodes and each one of those has to be a different animal that is is taken at the end of that uh Boy, that stuff is so monotonous and it's so pervasive yeah. in the, the the hunting world. I don't tune into any of it, to yeah. be quite honest with you. It, it, none of it actually appeals to me. And we and we kind of started out that way. Like mm-hmm. that's not what we accomplished, but we started out thinking that we had to do what everyone else was doing. We started out thinking, okay, so we need so we need to sell sponsorships. I mean, we literally right. came out of the gate like, okay, we need to find a backpack sponsor. We need to find a bow sponsor, an arrow sponsor. We need to find, you know, a coffee sponsor. We need to film 13 episodes. And mm-hmm. we, you know, that was our original, not even our original business plan, but those are the things that we originally talked about. Right. And then, I mean, within a couple of days, if not seemingly minutes, we just realized, well, okay, so if we go and film in a place and we kill a mountain goat or something like that. What was the story? What, what are we, what are we hanging our hats on here? And, Mm. and, and that's where we started to really struggle. And then we started talking to companies, showing them some of our work and they'd look at our work and they, they just, Oh my words. So, okay. So how do we work with you guys? How do we do this? How much money do you guys need? And we're, I mean, we're just like, Oh man, this is freaking awesome. This is incredible. And then we'd say, well, I don't, I don't know, you know, what's average or what are we talking about here? And then they'd say, well, we need, all we need you guys to do is to show, you know, show our binoculars 13 times an episode. And then, and, you know, we take a step back and we think, okay, well, if we show your binoculars 13 times an episode, what are what are we even trying to convey here? Right. We're not editing to tell a story. We're not editing to show you a piece of work or an adventure 
or even to show you a, a day of our in life of our journal what it, we experienced we're now checking so r- almost instantly we're like okay we need to do this without any sponsors right and so that was that was um how we kind of went forth and it was a struggle oh my word it was uh, i mean it still is still is a struggle and was a struggle is a struggle and and um very quickly we took a step back and said we need to do this we can't ever rely on outside money we need to do this internally with our own and 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 try to do it better and try to create work that people actually buy try to create films that people actually buy through dvd and blu-ray and downloads and and um you know and it it worked i'm not telling you that you know i didn't arrive here in a ferrari today that's that's for damn sure and and i didn't fly here first class but you know it was still cool we didn't we didn't ever do this to chase dollars and it was right. still cool to see you know to receive um fan mail in arabic to have a guy send me an email from iraq you know an iraqi guy not not a u.s right. soldier but an iraqi guy saying love the work i live near this little park I, I, I sometimes think I'm in North Dakota. I go and walk around this little park. And these are all things, you know, shipping DVDs out in the morning. We, you know, it's just a couple of us. We're packaging them up ourselves and shipping them out and, you know, mailing one to the Czech Republic and then mailing one to Australia and then mailing one to London and, you know, and, and uh, Egypt and South Africa. And it's just like, holy man, like people are watching our work all over the world. And like I said, it's, our, our bank accounts aren't full, but the intrinsic value of creating work that people want to watch around the globe and then the intrinsic value of soldiers and other people that um, might be where they don't want to be, uh, whether that be literally or mm-hmm. m- mentally or figuratively and reaching out and, and you know, and celebrating the work and <clears throat> the places that it takes them and the things that it reminds them of with their dads and their uncles and yeah so it's in that way it's extremely rewarding well what's next what are you doing in 19 that you can talk about that you know you've you've sketched sketched out drawn out written yeah what can you you tell us what you're doing in 19 so we have a couple of films that are in the can as -hmm. they say um and we so we we produced two films right away right out of the gate year one year two and then we've taken a we took basically a three year hiatus and and now we came out with this this third film the other side but right. we're gonna now start to really ramp up production. Um, we have a bunch of work that we want to share, a bunch of stories that we want to tell, and so um, we're just gonna start producing some work um, this next year. Both some short films, which will be fifteen to twenty minute type pieces that um, I think we'll just give away, like they'll just live and we'll just celebrate them with our partners like Black right. Rifle and just content and short stories to be told. Um, and then we have, we'll probably produce at least one more, if not two more long form films this next year. Um, and then, and then of course we have some filming to do We're we're, uh, putting together a pretty big piece from Australia and we're going back to live with some, um, Aboriginal people there, do some hunting, do some, um, um, for us to experience their cultures and, and some of the wilderness areas there. And right. so we'll, we, we have some filming projects that we're, we'll be doing and producing some additional films. But um, in 
August and September, I'm going to spend, uh, uh, I think, roughly 45 days in the Yukon. And uh, there's an area there called the Bonnet Plume. And a friend of mine, he's, uh, he owns an area called Bonnet Plume Outfitters, and he's a pilot there. And so we'll go into the wilderness, and basically I want to walk from one area, one portion of his area to another portion of his area and just kind of hunt along and, uh, and experience that over a long form um, trip and, um, and not to commercialize it, but, uh, we did an article a few years ago or last year in men's health yeah. magazine. Mm-hmm. And so the writer, Michael Easter, he's a professional of journalism at UNLV. He's going to come on that trip, which wow. is incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Cause he's yeah. not a hunter. And so he's going to come for the full 30 to 45 days and he's going to write a book about the experience. Wow. So he's basically going to write a book on what his experiences are working with our experience in the hunt. And then uh, I think he's probably going to leave the film side out of it, but him and I will just basically go through the hunt together and have conversations every day of what's going on and what it means to me, what it means to him. And, and, and then he's going to write a book about it. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. The book 45 days. Do you you have any idea what it's going to be called? Mm -mm. No. No, but um, it was really cool because he told me, and very intensive, he's a super right. gifted writer, um, but he told me to basically get the, what do they call it? Um, basically, to, you know, he went to publishers and just said, Here, here's an idea of what I'm thinking. Right. And I'm thinking he wrote five or six page summary of his ideas, and he's like, no, 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 the... The uh, the piece that he handed in was like fifty five or sixty pages. Oh, <laughs> really? It's like, are you freaking kidding me? And he's like, no, no. I basically had to write like a rub, rub down version of right. of what I think it's going to be like. And then he showed the men's health story, and and uh, so he's like, no, it's it's going to be pretty wicked. Yeah, so, just the amount of time forty five days in the yeah, wilderness. Yeah, the amount of adventure that that inspires is incredible. And it'll go from, it basically will travel, and I set it up this way, but it'll basically travel, it'll basically be summer when we get there, Mm -hmm. the end of summer, right? and it'll be winter when we leave. right? And so we'll get to film that. Entire transition. Entire transition. And then I have, not that I'm going for crazy, but I have in my pocket a doll sheep tag, a grizzly bear tag, a mountain caribou tag, and Alaska Yukon moose tag. And so w- what kind of trouble we'll get in along right. the crossing rivers, coming down mountains, just the general traversing the terrain. It's, I mean, the place is, it's a place that I've talked to uh, to you about bringing yeah. you there, but it's, it's it incredible. basically looks like Middle Earth. It's the most, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. Incredible and incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, no room for error there. None. Are you are you using pack animals? Nope. No pack animals. Backpack. Yeah. Backpack. Backpack everything. Wow. So Can't. how how are you uh so if you're killing along the way, yep. how are you packing and removing? Yep. So we will so let's say we kill a sheep, then we will break that animal down. Right. Um, put him in backpacks, backpack him to an airstrip. Got it. So yeah. we might have to go. 10 miles out yeah. of the way or whatever, okay. drop him off. Um, Chris will come in. Chris McKinnon will mm-hmm. come in with the Super Cub, pick him up, take him back, and 
get it hanging, get it cooled. And then, and we'll do that too in the field. Like we might kill a sheep and it might be four or five days right. before we can get to an airstrip. Right. And then same with caribou moose mm -hmm. and grizzly bear. So it'll be, uh, it'll be a pretty wicked adventure. It's definitely going to be, it'll be intense for us. And for me, I just want to, again, selfishly my ride. I just want to be ultra present yeah. every day, watch the sun come up, hunt well and good be honest with myself, honest with the animals and, um, and, and know that I'm never going to get this 45 days back in my life and take one more day along with my ride. Well, I mean, I, I'm just kind of speechless because I'm thinking about 45 days in the back country, 45 days, what that means, especially yeah. in that area, that will be an epic adventure. Oh, the, it, that's an understatement. Yeah. Because man, I'm I'm kind of blown away by that. Forty five days of it'll be traversing cool. so much territory. Cause yeah. that's like every minute of every day for forty five days is enough time where you you feel like you've got enough time in the bank. Yeah. To where the clock isn't really ticking no. until I would, for me mentally, like the clock wouldn't even be ticking until I was halfway through the, yeah, through the trip. And it's, it's, that's the gift. Yeah. Right. That's the gift yeah. is that the clock's not ticking. Yeah. And it's, it could be, who knows, but it could be a lifetime of experiences yeah. in 45 days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and there's this guy that did how we kind of came up with this scope, um, is, and it's kind of cool that these doors are opening. So Luis Romero, the guy from Tiburon Island, mm -hmm. Want he he saw our work, loved our work, instantly connected, which is really cool. But he connected his dad's rifle to me in the island and thought, let's get these things talking. And then same with Chris, you know, he's I've been to the bonnet plume once, but he's like, you need to come back to the bonnet plume, tell a story there, see and experience the things that mm -hmm. I see as a pilot, right? Uh, and tell the story. But there's a guy named I can't believe I can't remember his name. He's a photographer out of. Minnesota. Um, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. But he did a story. He did a, a photography book a few years ago, several years ago, like 15 years ago, where for a certain period of time, Brandenburg is his last name, Brandenburg. Um, anyway, for a certain period of time, he took, he's a sensational photographer, but he took one photo a day, one photo a day. And I read this book about him taking this one photo a day. And you'd think, Oh, this is easy. Like you take one photo a day. Like right. you can just take a photo of anything and that day was taken care of. But there were days that he took the photo in the first five minutes. You know, there are days that he photographed, yeah, Jim Brandenburg. Mm. There are days that he photographed the sun coming up. And so he was done for that day. Right. And then there are days that I read about him that he was in a panic because the sun was going down and he still hadn't found an image that he wanted to shoot. And so I just thought, how incredible if I did, you know, we're always, we're always looking for these stories under stories and trying to make, not make something out of nothing, but this is our business and we're, and we're, we're trying to tell tales that people remember. Right. But I just thought, what if we did the idea of Jim Brandenburg and we kind of captured an image a day on this Yukon trip, but instead of capturing an image a day, we just captured each day in an entirety and did it you know, maybe call the film 45 days. Right. And literally it's a journal hunt. You see me writing in my yeah. journal every day. Yeah. 
of the things that I just told you, the sketches that I have, the sketches that I see, mm-hmm. the questions that I have, the experience that I had that day, the 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 suffering. Like I might be having a mini temper tantrum over, you know, 10 days of rain or or the bugs are atrocious or I broke my ankle yesterday, but I'm deciding that I'm going to continue on and see what I can do with a broken ankle or whatever it may be. Um, I just think that's kind of exciting to think about. No, it's it's incredible. Like it's it's an incredible adventure that yeah, very few people I think would be physically capable of the task. Mentally, even less. Yeah, because that's it'll be tricky. Yeah, forty five days in the backcountry is, yeah. is is that's an incredible adventure. Well, Donnie, we're at three hours. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you if they don't know already, because I, we put it out before, but. We can do it again. Yeah, Instagram is uh, Donnie underscore Vincent. Um, not two underscores. Yeah, not two underscores. I have an imposter. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Facebook, just search yeah. my name. And, and then DonnieVincent.com is where we sell our films from. And then your last film, one more time. The Other Side. The Other Side. So, yeah. And that'll be available on? Uh, that'll be available on DonnieVincent.com for DVDs, Blu-rays, and then also mobile downloads. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Dude, can't thank you enough. Let's do it again. Yeah, thanks. Everybody.